Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason and me Bex. And today we've reached just over halfway <laughs> in our Prisoner series recap with episode nine, Checkmate. Yes. So Checkmate was one of the very earliest episodes that got recorded. It was shot back to back with Dance of the Dead, which probably puts it as roughly the third episode, mostly recorded in Port Mary, and obviously they would have finished some of the on-set filming later on. But it was pretty much third in the production order. But it ended up being broadcast ninth in the UK and I think 11th in the US when it was screened. So in some ways it feels a little bit out of place in the run. Um, There are a couple of thematic links with Free For All, for example, where in in Free For All he talks about wanting to be able to tell the difference between the wardens and the prisoners in the village. And that's, of course, a big theme that comes up in this episode is trying to discern who is really a prisoner and who is a guardian. And also at one point in the word association game that he plays, he actually responds to the word free with for all. Um. Uh, but when it got broadcast, it was separated from free for all by quite a few episodes. So despite that, I began by saying we're over halfway through the series uh, in many alternate realities of watching The Prisoner in various viewing orders. We're either not very far at all or much further along than we thought. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yes, if you're listening to us uh, in the UK broadcast order, then, of course, everything is fine. If you're listening in the production order, well, you've got a long way to go. <laughs> so, later on in the episode, we're going to have a chat all about Checkmate with Rick Davey from your mutual website, who you will almost certainly have heard before if you've listened to any of our other Tally Ho podcasts. Uh, But this time he joined us not just to talk about all the news from The Prisoner, but also all about Checkmate as well. Yeah, and after he's done his interview, which takes place after our recap and analysis of Checkmate, uh, village style, he does return. Um, (laughs) It could be his double... It could be another version of Rick Davey who looks a lot like him and sounds a lot like him. Um, but maybe Schizoid Man style, he has to uh, shave a moustache off before he does the news every week. I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, Rick will return afterwards for uh, news from the world of The Prisoner as well. So there's you know, a huge amount of Rick Davey in this episode. And you know what? He's been such a big support of the show as well. We're really glad that he's uh, taking the time to speak to us. And it was really great because he actually did the commentaries on the recent Blu-ray release. Mm. So these are text commentaries, which, as he'll say during the episode, I think it's just a remarkable fact. So I'm telling it to you now, and, I'll, and you'll hear it again later. But I think he puts a new fact up on screen every five seconds or something for every episode of The Prisoner. So Rick is uh, not only um, a great friend of the podcast and a great supporter of it, but he's one of the most knowledgeable people about the show. And it was a real pleasure to chat to him properly this time because we spoke to him for our 50th anniversary episodes as well, not just in his capacity as providing news, but also to give us some fascinating insights into the episode itself and also the prisoner in general. Yep, and if you stay tuned for the news, uh, there's a competition for tickets to the upcoming Elstree event about Patrick McGuinn's life and career. So stay tuned, that's all going to be in the news segment at the end of the programme. But for now, let's crack on with Checkmate. Do you play chess, sir? Yes. Come and join us. I'm the queen. Come and be the queen's pawn. So before kicking off, I think one of the really interesting things about this episode is the fact that if you've only seen Arrival, you know, as your introduction to the show, 
this is probably the episode which encapsulates many of the things that we associate in a pop culture sense with The Prisoner, both in terms of uh, the way it's shot, the, you know, lots of shots of Port Marion throughout the episode. Uh, thematically, I think it sticks with a lot of the things that became synonymous with the show, the idea of prisoners and warders, the idea that this is really a prison for lots of people. There are themes which are intercepted, which I think aren't really returned to a lot at some later episodes. Although you kind of think when you look at the you know, the series, you'll think, oh, I remember that being in it. But actually, a lot of it is focused here. Hmm. These ideas that there are other people in the village who are also prisoners. And the idea they all might get together and launch some kind of prison break, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I think it really takes the, it takes the analogy of the villages of prison really far in this episode. Um, I mean, this is basically the prison break episode where everyone tries to get out and he manages to find people who are like minded and is able to get them out. I think this is probably also give us an early episode more in line with what uh, George Markstein probably contributed to the idea of the story as well. I mean, he liked the idea of the village as a prisoner for spies and people. And I think that element is really strong in this episode. And, you know, I can see a lot of things here that receded here that obviously would have been part of it being one of the earliest episodes in the run. I think placing it in the middle of the run, at least in the UK order, kind of spreads out some of the some of the prisoner mythology across the whole series. Yeah, I think number six tends to be a bit of a lone wolf in a lot of his mm. episodes. I think this is probably the only one where he recruits an entire gang of people yeah. with him. Um, you know, at most you see him with you know one person, like in the times of Big Ben when he's with Nadia. But with this, you know, they, they've got an entire group who decide to break out together. I think that's unique among all the episodes of The Prisoner. Albeit that a lot of the people around him are quite minor characters, mm. but when you see how many of them they've recruited at the end, it's quite startling. One of the things about this episode is all of the chess motifs, and particularly all that footage shot in Port Marion on the chessboard with the human chess, is one of the things that people associate visually with The Prisoner. Mm. That when people think of The Prisoner, they think about you know, Rover... And they think about the chess game. Yeah. Um, and this episode has both of them. It's got Rover and it's got um, the chess game in it and lots and lots of beautiful Port Marion. And all the people out wearing their cloaks playing chess. Mm. It's it's iconic in that way that even if people haven't necessarily seen Checkmate, they probably associate images from Checkmate with what the prisoner is. Mm. And I wonder if some of these themes were deliberately kept within this episode or they were meant to be expanded on should the show have continued probably more you know in a more formulaic fashion because mm. i can imagine you know some of these characters they're quite they're quite well drawn even in an episode they're not they're not that disposable and you get the sense that some of them could have potentially returned again mm. and i would also say the same about uh, peter wingard as number two mm. i think there's an element that some of these characters were were so well drawn that they they were almost being established as secondary characters who could have appeared in later episodes but like many episodes of the of the prisoner, there's very little uh, cast continuity between them, and it does, at the end, feel like an isolated episode, which is quite jarring in some respects because it you know nothing is really followed up on, but thematically I think it does link with what we've seen before in the earlier episodes, and like you said, most notably with uh, free for all as well. Yeah, and I think if you if you did place this early on in the run. It also links very heavily with Arrival, particularly the end of Arrival, where um, the Admiral is playing chess with, um, I've forgotten the number of the the woman who tries to help Num6 escape at the end. 
Oh, uh, a cop's, cop's girlfriend. girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember her number, but um, and he says we're all pawns, my dear. And of course, this you have specifically um, the imagery of chess pawns in particular mm. again. I mean, it's a bit heavy-handed, but it's only that way, I think, because this is such, uh, as you said, an episode that that has produced, you know, so much use of the human chess game, which if you ask somebody about The Prisoner, they might think, oh yeah, that's a show with a human chess game, but it only happens for, what, maybe five, ten minutes? Mm. At the beginning of this one episode, it's not spoken of again. But it was nice earlier this year when we went to Port Marion to actually, you know, wander around and you could see the, the newly installed uh, uh, chessboard there. And I think it's uh, it's a really nice addition because it does, it suddenly adds even more strangeness to uh, <laughs> uh, to Port Marion and makes it more like we're actually in the village. Mm. So the episode itself is written by Gerald Kelsey, directed by Don Chaffee. Or rather, the external bits were directed by Don Chaffee. Um, the, some of the bits that were actually shot on the soundstage later on were directed by Patrick McGowan. Um, but it's credited to Don Chaffee because he did the majority of the directing. Yeah, and you know it's a standard opening credits, except for one thing which I think is really cool. I only noticed it on our rewatch in preparation for this episode, which is uh, when it's revealed that the new number two in this episode is Peter Wingard, who would become famous. Well, he was already famous before. He was in lots of TV shows, but I think he, he's most well known for being Jason King, mm. which was filmed probably two, three years after uh, The Prisoner. Yeah. Um, what I like is that when he delivers his uh, his lines in the call and response thing with, uh, with number six, he's not looking at the camera this time. He's intently looking at the screen. He's looking up the whole time. And I think... Unlike other number twos thus far in the run, Peter Wingard's number two is really in control. He's, you know, he's looking at that screen. He's got his eye on number six and he's going to get his information from him. And I really like the fact that it's just a it's a little detail that I noticed, you know, after many watches of this episode. But I thought that's actually kind of cool. He doesn't do the usual straight to camera thing. His goal is to take down number six. And I like his his perseverance and his uh, his cold, calculating fashion throughout the whole thing, especially towards the payoff. I think he's a fantastic number two mm. in this episode, and I would have, I would have loved to see him return in some capacity. But I kind of think that about many of the number twos. Mm. But he's, but he's one of my favourites. Yeah, I like his eyeliner. This <laughs> <laughs> is a strong eyeliner game. <laughs> right. So it's a beautiful day in the village. Uh, Rover is patrolling the streets. Almost everyone freezes as Rover bounces through the uh, streets of Port Marion and the one person who doesn't freeze is someone who's credited as man with a stick <laughs> I think but I think we just call him the count because yeah. we get told that he, they think that he might have once been a count so he's striding confidently down the streets apparently completely unafraid of Rover as he passes him by um, even as everybody else is frozen in place yeah and uh, number six observes this and it's interesting that he doesn't, you know, again, this is an early episode, potentially, in how they were thinking about this. And he he doesn't respond to Rover in fear. He basically sees this happening. He Like, it looks just more odd to him that all these people are frozen. So maybe he hasn't had that many encounters with Rover when they were planning to put this episode out. Um, he sees uh, the Count go past and he uh, follows him. And this leads to uh, a giant chessboard, which has appeared just for this one episode um, in the middle of the village. The Count, he sees number six and he asks him to join. And the Count is joined by number eight, played by Rosalie Crutchley, who is the queen in the game. 
And she also invites number six to join and says, come and be the Queen's Pawn. <laughs> and the Queen's Pawn is actually the original title of the episode. Mm. I don't know why they changed it, but I kind of like the original title, The Queen's Pawn, because there's a double meaning here. If number six did used to be a spy or work for the government in, in some capacity, then he would have been working for... Her Majesty, you know, it's Her Majesty's government, <laughs> or we would, you know, on Her Majesty's secret service. So he would have once, in some respects, been the Queen's pawn in his former life. But also, there's this um, British colloquialism where people who are in prison are said to be serving at Her Majesty's pleasure. <laughs> so he is both gone from potentially having been the Queen's pawn in his job to now being the Queen's pawn in his life. <laughs> Nice. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, for some reason they changed the checkmate. So here we are. So uh, Six strikes up a little bit of a conversation uh, with the Queen, who tells him that you know, the man with the cane, as we've said, uh, was rumoured to be uh, a count, but she doesn't say you know where he was from or know anything about him other than those details. She does reveal that his ancestors played chess uh, with their retainers and beheaded them as they left the board, but also ominously says, oh, that's not going to happen here. Um <laughs> Which is a very, it's a very strange detail because it's one of those things where you're not sure how to respond to that kind of information. It's a, it's a weird thing to know, given that no one knows anything about previous people's lives before they're in the village. Yeah. To have this information, it's a very sinister turn of events. And also it does make you question what, you know, again, I suppose what side everyone is on and what is treated as normal in this <laughs> environment and potentially what the stakes are of uh, this chess game. Yeah, because you wouldn't normally feel the need to qualify a statement like that with, don't worry, that's not going to happen to you today. <laughs> you know, it's a bit harsh. And then I find it interesting that number six then asks her in the course of this conversation, who is number one? Hmm. Because I'm not sure why he would think that she would know that. I mean, obviously he doesn't know at this point, is she a prisoner or a guardian or, or whatever? But he doesn't ask most people, who is number one. He normally only asks number two, who is number one. But I do wonder on reflection if maybe the fact that he's seen this guy walking through the village unafraid of Rover Mm. and now completely taking charge of this chess game, if maybe he suspects that he's number one. Mm. I've always wondered whether he equates her rank as queen in the game with potentially being an important person. As well, so maybe she might know a little bit more. Mm. Um, but again, I yeah, I don't know. It, it's one of those. It's one of those funny details which does make you think. You know what exactly is going on here? Is it, is this part of his long-standing game to kind of interrogate subtly people in the village to see what they know? Mm. And again, that is, I suppose, a theme throughout the episode where he is trying to get information about who's on which side in the world of the village. As they carry on chatting, Six implies that he intends to escape. Mm. And the Queen says, oh no, it's impossible. And she says, I've tried lots of times with lots of different people and it never works at one point. Um, and while they're having this chat, these instructions for number six to move his pawn piece mm. are being yelled over and over again because he's mm-hmm. just paying absolutely no attention to them. Um, yeah. It, it, eventually, as everyone is shaking their uh, chess pieces on sticks mm. at him, he realises he's meant to move. And whilst the game is playing, uh, we cut to the control room where number two and a new character called number 56, who is uh, serving the role, I think, of the supervisor in the absence of Peter Swanick. Uh, they're watching the game and they're keeping their eye on 
uh, on what number six is doing the whole time. And uh, the one interesting line that comes out from uh, number two is the fact that he says, uh, well, of number six, he's just a pawn, one false move, and he'll be wiped out, which is quite sinister. Again, it goes to this idea that they, they're trying to break this guy. They're watching everything he's doing, and they know that he's probably prone to insubordination mm. in some way. Um, but it also sets up an interesting motif, which is the fact that they uh, refer to the queen protecting him. Mm. And uh, number two says, "Well, she's not going to. She's not going to do that. He wouldn't, you know, protect him above herself or anything like that." But then that is kind of reversed throughout the episode mm. when they actually engineer a situation when the queen does put herself and her own sort of uh, safety in the hands of uh, of number six. Mm. And as the game goes on, is it just me or is the guy that he chats to, um, who I think is playing a bishop on the other side, mm. in the straw boater and the light blue jumper, mm. the same guy who is the Count's opponent in the chess game, who's also got a loudspeaker? He does He does look quite similar. His badge is a different colour. Yeah. So I think the one who's playing the, playing the game has got a white penny farthing on a black badge. Mm. The one who's actually a participant in the game, as the bishop has got a, it's a standard white badge with the black penny farthing. Um, but he does look quite similar. You know, his jumper is the same. And to be honest, I think it'd be kind of clever if they put a double in here for no reason, just <laughs> for the sake of it. But it's a nice little detail. It could be. Um, but I'm not sure if both characters are credited at the end. So I don't know if there's there's some hint as to what's going on there. But they could just look very similar. So the game continues. And in the cacophony of all these chess moves being shouted out, we then focus on a character who we will learn to know only as uh, the Rook, or I think number 58, I mm, think. Yeah. Who's, uh, you know, it's a wonderful performance by uh, Ronald Rad, who's in loads of other TV shows and films and things like that. He's great in this. Um, but there's this expression on his face as he's hearing all this stuff, and you know that something's not right. And he is going to defy what's going on in this chess game, especially in light of what one of the other chess pieces has told number six where he's, he said, oh, I love a game of chess. And he kind of treats it as just a game, whereas Six sees it as the, as the power play that the village is actually exercising. So the Rook kind of looks quite shifty. <laughs> he looks around, he panics, he's starting to sweat. And then what he does is in an act of utter defiance, uh, which is being observed uh, in the control room as well, uh, he moves without orders and uh, he moves, plants himself in a new point on the board and shouts, check. And at this point, obviously, this uh, this triggers the village to respond in kind for this kind of insubordination. And they uh, order him to be carted away and taken to hospital, yeah. which is not something he necessarily seems to be that surprised with. He's like he's you know, this is an act of defiance and he knows what the consequences are. It's that sense of rebellion. And this is probably the thing which triggers Six to realise that this could be somebody who's like minded when it comes to wanting to escape the village. Yeah, and the people running the chess game also shout to call the substitute. Yeah. So evidently they're used to needing substitute players. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, what happens in these games of chess that they need to get substitute players in all the time? But in no other episodes do we really deal with other members of the village as real prisoners, you know, mm. who are also, uh, you know, defying orders. So this is the only time it happens. And maybe they decided it would have made the show more about that than it was about six in some way and some of the ideas they want to explore so maybe they just cut that out in later episodes and um ronald rad was he the guy who was in was the original tv movie that was callan before callan yes so we yeah we were reading about this actually and um he's very familiar 
like his face is very familiar in, in many things and uh he was in an old armchair theater special which i think was one that birthed the character of callan as played by edward woodward uh, in the follow-up tv series um i think he then appeared in callan as well yeah. um i know he was in random hopcat <laughs> <laughs> So one thing you can do is always is always tell when somebody's been in Randall and Hopkins. <laughs> Mainly because everyone was in Randall and Hopkins disease. <laughs> yeah, so as they're taking him away, and obviously number six is a bit concerned, but none of the other players seem that concerned about him. And the Queen says, you know, it's not allowed the cult of the individual that he, he just went and made this move by himself. And says, Don't worry, he'll get the best treatment at the hospital. So evidently other prisoners know that people get taken away to the hospital for treatment. Mm. And maybe if they've been sufficiently brainwashed, they do view it as positive, benign treatment that's going to help someone. Yeah, I can almost imagine, you know, the phrase cult of the individual being improvised, you know, on set by McGowan when they were filming. This is the line we have to have in there. It's such a it's such a heavy handed way of expressing this whole thing. I mean, it's you know, and I I bet he thought this is what this thing is going to be about. I mean, maybe he wouldn't be that heavy-handed, I don't know. But I can imagine him thinking, this is the line we're going to use. Um, but it's a nice little moment. And it again, it ties back to the idea that um, is introduced in Arrival that uh, people who don't follow the rules get taken to hospital for treatment. <laughs> um, you know, it's not really a hospital and it's not really treatment. Um, but that's how they refer to it in these benign kind of ways when actually it's a lot more sinister than it seems. So he gets carted off and the substitute is called and they carry on with the game until it ends in checkmate. Yeah. And a victory for the Count, I think. And uh, Six and the Count kind of leave the game. It's nice at the end they all kind of congratulate each other. Six's uh, robe is taken away and he's just left standing there and he follows the Count out of the main sort of chess-playing arena and they discuss the idea of defying the village in some way. And uh, this conversation is kind of interesting because uh, the Count reveals that he basically knows, you know, in a game of chess, and this is obviously a very heavy-handed metaphor, which comes across <laughs> the episode, you know, he knows who is black and who is white um, uh, by the moves they make. And that translates to the fact that he believes that you can, you can tell from the behaviour of those in the village who is a captive and who is somebody involved in, uh, in running the operation as well. And this is something which seems to strike a chord with number six I, I'm not sure if six had thought about this idea before but he has tremendous affinity for it um, and I think that sets up the whole idea that his you know with this perspective he's going to see if he can go around the village and determine who can be trusted from his perspective and who can't be and whether he can utilize these people to organize a prison break of sorts so the count is played by George Kaluris who is in loads of films he used to be sort of one of Orson Welles um, gang who did loads of theatre stuff, didn't he? Mm. Um, and he, he was in Citizen Kane, I think. And also the final episode of Danger Man. Mm. <laughs> Leading straight on to the prisoner. And it's a really interesting conversation that they have together. At one point he asked number six, I think he says, you must be new here. So again, this is making it feel like it really ought to be earlier on in the story. Yeah, and Dance of the Dead had you know, number six exclaiming, I'm new here. Yeah. yeah, as well, yeah. Yeah. But the, the Count states that he enjoys playing chess because it's the only opportunity you get to feel any power because you're playing chess with other people. Yeah, it's interesting. For the first time, Six is talking to somebody in the series who has a sympathetic opinion to his own. And it's a conversation which really is about the idea of individuality. There's 
that comment about how, you know, the use of, of costumes to define people. And that's basically what they're doing by draping everyone in these in these capes. They make everyone the same. Whereas the, uh, well, as I say earlier on, you know, the cult of the individual is what it must be used to fight against this, um, this conformity which is being forced upon everyone. Mm. But in some ways, even the way that they've made the Count look is similar to number six because he's got a blue jacket but it's otherwise very similar to number six with the white piping on, <laughs> which I quite like. And they uh, they wander over to the general store and the Count is explaining that he used to want to try to escape, but now he's too old for it. And instead he uh, tries to keep his mind sharp by doing things like playing chess, basically just to stick two fingers up to the village <laughs> authorities by uh, refusing to sort of go quietly. Um, and I like the fact that as they're chatting in the window behind them, in the shop window, you see somebody place a, a doll out. And it's the same doll that was in Six's room in Arrival that had that mm-hmm. little card in it that said, welcome to your home from home. <laughs> so again, I mean, it's, you know, it's a nice little recurring motif. And I never spotted that until you pointed it out. It's a beautiful little reference to that first episode. But the use of it is also quite sinister because they do focus on it. And I can never understand why they why they focused on this doll before but yeah that and that explains it so they finish chatting and uh obviously discussing this idea of you know of escape is starts to be, become something on six's mind the count says that he's he's thought about escaping before he knows people have tried everyone has failed again these are all themes that you would introduce at the start of a series so it is a bit unusual having this you know episode episode nine in the run um what I do like is the shot of Six leaving. It's the first time, I think, in the series you have a nice view of uh, Unicorn House, mm, yeah. which is one of the houses which, you know, it's beautiful architecture in the village. It's rarely seen in the series in that much clarity, mainly because there aren't, you know, they interspersed, you know, the Port Marion scenes throughout throughout the runs. You don't see a lot of it. But this is one of the few times you see Unicorn House. And when we were there um, in Port Marion, I think what we were told was it's Jules Holland's favourite place to go and stay. Mm. So you know one of the, uh, you know the you know the great pianist and uh, uh, member of Squeeze. Uh, he's a huge Prisoner fan. He did that um, that laughing Prisoner thing many years ago. He's a huge fan of the show. He talks about it all the time. Um, but that's apparently where he has liked to stay in the past when he goes and visits. Mm. So as Six carries on walking, um, the Queen is following him quite intently, and she basically wants to join in his uh, presumed escape attempt that. She thinks that he was alluding to on the chessboard. Now he, in his standard mode of not trusting anyone, completely rejects her help um, because he doesn't trust her. But he does also ask, you know, why she's interested, what she knows, and she does make reference to other people having tried to escape in the past, her having knowledge of it. So maybe it's in the recent past, and uh, the fact she almost knows what not to try. Um, but he's still quite dismissive of the whole thing, and it's interesting. Although they they bring in the idea of her being hypnotized in some way into falling in love with him she's clearly already at this point kind of intrigued by him mainly because i think she sees him as somebody who may be the kind of person who will launch a successful escape from the village hello enjoy your chest yesterday don't tell me you care well of course we want you to be happy fine just um Give me a one-way ticket home. Won't you ever give up? So the following day, number six is taking a stroll when number two 
pulls up in a mini moke to say hello. <laughs> or, hello! <laughs> and uh, he asked him if he enjoyed his chess game, which is, a you know, again, another very subtle way of just letting him know that they're keeping tabs on him. They know what he was doing yesterday. They want to know if he enjoyed it. And uh, they have a little exchange about the rook, where number six basically accuses them of torturing people. Mm. Uh, and number two is, says, no, 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 but, you know, he's getting help. We're treating him. Why don't you come with me to the hospital and I'll, I'll show you exactly what's going on. Um, and he's being very kind of faux-friendly about the whole thing. But number six takes him up on his offer of heading to the hospital to check on the rook. And it's interesting that already num- even number two is referring to him as the rook yeah. at this point and not a number. So it's like they're already manoeuvring themselves into position as to you know who is the piece in the game. Yeah, I like that. I think one thing we've touched upon earlier in our episode discussions has been the fact that if a character still goes by a name in the village rather than a number, there's often some significance and often a negative attribute that comes along with that, where, you know, like Cobb or Nadia. Mm. They're always people who end up being turncoats in some way. In this case, the use of the uh, chess piece names for the characters is very appropriate simply because, like you say, they are being labelled as as the pawns in this game. And you could almost imagine this is, you know, this is a direct follow-up to what the Admiral said on the arrival. You know, we're all pawns and everyone is a pawn in this game. And it's interesting that Six doesn't see it yet. And I think that's the beauty of the episode as well, that he only realises, I think, that he's in a chess game, like, too late on in the process. Whereas it's almost like he doesn't realise he's playing the game, whereas number two has got this whole thing mapped out. And that's why number two's strategy, I think, is very successful in this episode, because he's thinking several moves ahead, which is what you have to do in chess. Whereas Six has been quite reactionary to everything. And by the time he engages with the game, by the end, he realises that he's already been outthought. So all the actions of the characters do sort of fit with how a game of chess would play out. So I like the structure of the episode as well in that same way. Hmm. One unintended consequence of this is that uh, when you're podcasting about the prisoner 50 years later... It's a heck of a lot easier to keep track of people by their chess piece names than it is by their numbers. Because <laughs> I can't tell you how confusing it is after so many weeks solid of podcasting about the prisoner to be remembering everybody's new number every single time. And when they reuse numbers as well, that's a real pain. <laughs> yes, but for now we can just go rook, queen, and uh, well, the count's not really a chess piece, but it's all it's all good. Yes, your system worked for a little bit, and then only for two pieces. <laughs> So we're in the observation room at the hospital and we see a psychiatrist and her assistant who are uh, looking after the rook who appears to be unconscious and in a chair. Um, Now the psychiatrist asks a couple of interesting questions of her assistant. She asks if she's worked with her before. She gives us some advice on not speaking to the patient, which kind of suggests that maybe um, the assistant is you know, a new member of staff. Maybe the hospital itself has a high turnover (laughs) of who's involved in things. And also it it kind of, you know, questions who these people are who are being brought together to perform these tests. Clearly there's one person in charge of doing the experiments, but, you know, at every level in the village, which we associate with a a number two feature, there is always turnover. You know, people (laughs) are always changing. It kind of adds this this sense of uh, 
they're always being a different face behind everything that's going on. You know, no one can be pinned down. It's it's a nice little detail, but you do see it again and again that, that everyone changes. And even people within the village are aware of other people changing positions all the time as well. Yeah. So where are they hiring all these people from? Mm. And where do they go to after they leave their <laughs> jobs? Uh, so it's like something you can put in your CV up on Indeed, is it? <laughs> Spent six months torturing people in the village. <laughs> now looking for a place with uh, good teamwork and excellent career progression opportunities. <laughs> number two and number six are watching as this experiment carries on. And number two says that it's based on Pavlov's experiments, which were all about you know, conditioned reflexes and um, and behavioural learning and stuff like that. But this seems to be more t- sort of crushing someone's independence, I suppose. Yeah, it's designed as Six is told to be more about getting uh, the Rook to actually cooperate, to do what he's told. So there is a reward associated only with doing what the disembodied voice tells him to do, which is at the right time you can get water from the blue uh, dispenser because he's been dehydrated, he needs a drink. And he's trying all of them, but on a couple of them he gets electrocuted as well. And he's basically told, no, don't do that. You have to use the right dispenser when I tell you and you'll get it. And it's all designed just to break him, but also make him do what they want him to do. And by him eventually getting water from the right dispenser when he's been told he's allowed to do that, they see that as a real win for them because they've managed to get him to conform in some way. Hmm. And the psychiatrist seems very proud that this experiment is working. She's joined them in the observation room to watch through the window as as he's in the room by himself um, getting the water finally. And she seems very happy that this is all working exactly as she'd hoped. Um, you know, he's going to be model citizen after this, doing what he's told. Hmm. And she's clearly been working on him for a while. Hmm. So his act of defiance on the chessboard is not a new thing that's happened. Um, which implies that they've been trying to break people in the village uh, when they've come in on multiple occasions. And the fact that they don't want to use any of these methods on six is quite telling. Hmm. Um, well, I think the psychiatrist probably would like to use a few of the methods on that's six. That's true. But in, but in for example, uh, you know, A, B and C, hmm. the psychiatrist, well, no, no, she's a scientist in that, isn't she? Hmm. You know, she's very cautious about it because she knows the dangers of it. Whereas yeah. it's, it's clear that some members are quite callous and some people are more reserved in in feeling that what they're doing could be uh, too damaging to him. And, so, and often it's the it's the number two character who is trying to explain that maybe, you know, they don't want to go too far. They don't want to damage number six. Here we've got somebody who's who's ready to go for it. Um but it's interesting that the strategy they use does not follow that. It's more about manipulating the people who Six is interacting with rather than Six himself. Yeah, you can kind of assume that the village probably runs in a need-to-know system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, p- people who are scientists or uh, members of staff or, you know, psychiatrists, doctors, they probably don't know the top-secret reasons that Number 2 knows as to why Number 6 is so important mm-hmm. and why they can't harm him. So if they're used to just you know, putting people through terrible experiments in order to get the job done. They don't necessarily know the reasons why they can't do that to number six. So for them, it's just another challenge, another person who's come in who's always a bit willful. <laughs> Got to do something about that. How about a lobotomy? <laughs> that would be the trick. But the dangerous thing as well is it's never really clear if the rotating number two actually has an idea what they are trying to get out of number six. The dangerous thing is the is the fact that 
number one has told number two this is what you have to do and they they they've probably been told it's important it's critical to get the information that's in his head but do not damage him but the scary thing is he's giving the orders or she's giving the orders in some episodes and the number two does not actually potentially know what the end goal is they've been told to break him they don't know why so you know there's a strange hierarchy of uh, abuse that exists within the village and at that level, there are people giving out orders who are doing it even at the highest level without knowing what the ultimate intent is. But I love the fact that the psychiatrist only ever addresses number two in the situation. <laughs> and it goes back to when she was telling her assistant, don't actually speak to the patient. That even when number six is in the room, she says to number two, uh, you know, he's an interesting subject. I'd like to know his breaking point. And she's openly looking at number six and everyone's aware that he's in the room and can hear this and clearly don't care that he can hear this and yet she's it's a bit of a power play that she's not addressing him he's not important he's a subject to be experimented on she's addressing number two because he's the person who would ultimately decide whether or not that happens Um, and i just love number six's parting line which is you could make that your life's ambition (laughs) (laughs) and once again i think it's an example of this show often through the necessity of having Magoon involved, you know, they really have some fantastically well-drawn female roles in this series. Yeah, she's brilliant in this, Patricia Jessel. And I'm sure I read somewhere that um, the role wasn't specifically written to be a a female psychiatrist, but they just cast her. She's so good in it. (laughs) So Six is relatively unruffled by his interactions with the psychiatrist and number two. He heads out. Um, He goes to the fountain where he is observing the rook who's sitting there kind of minding his own business. Now, Six is uh, pretending to look at a chess puzzle. And uh, what he's actually doing is as he's observing people, he's filling in um, all the all the number squares with details of whether he thinks somebody is essentially a a prisoner or somebody involved in uh, in well, on the other side in running the village. Um, in most cases, he's crossing them off when he sees somebody. But in the case of the rook, he stares at him and he sees the rook look away and uh, he writes rook in the spaces of the uh, of the chess puzzle. Yeah, a little tick next to it. Mm. Yeah. And what I love is this chess puzzle has uh, been printed in an edition of the Tally-Ho. Hey! <laughs> uh, but it's clearly a really kind of dodgy sort of cut and paste job that they've stuck into a page of the Tally-Ho. It's like a different... You might not be able to see it on the original DVD, but you can see it on the Blu-ray. Yeah, it's a different yeah. colour to the page around it. <laughs> it's great. But I, I remember those those chess puzzles because my, my grandma used to do those chess puzzles in the paper. But I haven't seen one in the paper for ages. Mm. But it, it would pose some kind of problem as to what the move ought to be. Uh, such a long time ago. I love the fact that it's such a covert way of keeping an eye on what's going on. Um, and again, I know we, we always go back to this discussion, you know, what was what was number six before he was uh, taken captive by the village. But, you know, it's such a... It's a kind of thing you would see in a you know in a in a spy novel, mm. you know somebody's walking around pretending to do a chess puzzle but actually uh, making notes on on those who he's actually observing. Yeah, it's it's classic spy territory. Mm. And uh, as he decides that the rook is potentially someone that he can trust, potentially another prisoner, he starts following him through the village to some wonderful Pink Panther esque <laughs> incidental music. I really love that music for some reason. And uh, the rook senses he's being followed and starts trying to speed up, but uh, number six uh, 
manages to cut him off behind. I'm trying to. The problem is when I watch that scene, I always try and remember where that is in Port Marion because I've stood there <laughs> where that blue thing is with the word private on, mm. and I'm sure it's somewhere where you can't go up the stairs <laughs> from where they are. Yeah, full credit to the uh, you know uh, production design on this because if you go to Port Marion, it's a lovely place, but it's actually quite small. And these little chase scenes make it look far much more labyrinthine and expansive than it actually is. It just, mm. you know, they really make use of every every corner, every every sort of archway that you can walk under, every bit of cobbled pathway. They all look like it's it's part of a much bigger area. It just adds to the confusion of the place. It's almost very strange when you go to Port Marion in real life and you realise it's actually quite small. Um, it's not as as strangely laid out as it seems. Um, I mean, essentially, if you're in any one part of Port Murray, you can see everything else. Whereas here, it seems like there, you know, this chase is, is taking place in, you know, a network of back streets that exist, when in reality, they're all probably going around the same corner again and again and again. <laughs> so uh, the Rook, he seems quite paranoid. He believes that Six is actually one of the guardians or warders, not a prisoner like himself. And I think, you know, he references uh, in a few moments the fact that he's been caught this way before. So he talks a little bit about his past. He says he's not really sure how long he's been there, but he thinks it's been a while. He's clearly had interactions with uh, the village who have tried to break him and get information. And he, and he reveals that his past job was as, um, is it like a like an electronic radio engineer or something? Something like that, yeah. Because he talks about the fact that he invented an electronic defence system and he thought that every country should have it because that way it would ensure peace. And obviously this did not go down well with someone somewhere because hmm. he ended up in the village. And he said the irony is that some stupid bureaucrat let their bag get stolen and so hmm. it got out anyway. Um, there was no need to keep him there. Not you know whether to extract how it worked from him or whether to keep him from giving the uh, the plans to everybody. You know, you could imagine it being either way as to why they brought him there, depending on who is running it. Yeah, and uh, Six reveals that he's interested in talking to him. I think he has to, you know, say why he's there. Uh, he says because he's, you know, there are very few independently minded people left in the village. And obviously this uh, flicks a switch in the Rook, who realises that uh, Six is also a prisoner as well, uh, which sets up this this interesting association that, you know, leads to their ultimate plan to see if they can launch an escape mission. What I do like is the fact that, you know, Six is so defiant when he's being told to give up information. He never says anything about his past. Mm. And yet he is able to break other people in the village. He is able to go up to people and get them to reveal what their past life was before they were taken captive here. And unusually, the Rook is somebody who is aware of what his past life was. Mm. He doesn't, you know, there's always been a question over whether people have had their, you know, their their minds wiped or something so they can't remember. They always have these weird responses when you ask them what they used to do. In this case, he is fully aware of what he used to do and he knows why he was taken by the village, which is kind of interesting. And the fact that Six is able to get that information from him so easily, I do wonder if this is the, the first seed of doubt that may be in the rook's head where he must be thinking you know although he trusts him he's also thinking why does this guy want to get this information and he must be a little bit concerned that he's managed to get this information out of him so easily as well so number six and the rook are now watching another chess game taking place on the lawn and they're being observed by the supervisor who 
calls up number two to warn him that they seem to be getting friendly. Uh, and obviously it's of great interest to them when number six becomes <laughs> close with anybody in the village, really. Um, so number two is perturbed enough to want audio on what it is that they're saying. Because they can see on the video that they're chatting together, but they can't hear. And number six obviously knows that they're going to do this because um, they very quickly go from chatting about the manner in which number six is identifying people. He explains to the rook that um, you know, he knew he was a prisoner because he was immediately subservient to him without having to use force. And that the reason why the rook assumed that number six might be a guardian is because um, he was, I suppose, too confident, mm. um, which will, funnily enough, ultimately be his downfall. <laughs> Uh, but they switch from that to talking about the chess game and discussing what moves the people playing the chess game are making. And when number two hears that, he thinks that there's probably nothing wrong. And then just to be sure, uh, they call up the psychiatrist who says that she's fully confident that the um, behavioural conditioning that they've done to the rook is sufficient that he uh, won't get up to any mischief. So I love Six's simple psychology that he's using here to identify people. Um, and it follows with uh, Six and the Rook wandering around the village as they try and put their team together for their prison break. And uh, they go around, they see the gardener, who is quite defensive when um, Six talks to him, and they, they realise that he's a guardian. They see the guy painting one of the towers, mm. who um, immediately feels quite intimidated by the questioning about you know the quality of the work he's doing. And then they return also to the shopkeeper who hasn't been seen since arrival. So mm-hmm. the guy who was in charge of the village store who who sold him the uh, the maps in the first episode. He's there as well. And it turns out that he is a prisoner as well mm. um, because he seems to be quite perturbed by Six's request to want to uh, review his books. And I like the fact the whole time that this is happening, the Rook is kind of shuffling around alongside, <laughs> not really sure what to do, but acting as his partner in crime partly to keep up the charade that they're playing this game to identify people, but also just, I think, observing Six as well to see exactly if this this crazy system might actually be true when it comes to identifying who are the prisoners and who are the guardians. Um, and it's such a striking scene, this, but I think it really fits with what you were saying at the top of the episode about how this links with Six's plan and free-for-all to basically work out who is on which side and use that against the village, which he hasn't really done yet in the series. Um, And he doesn't really do again. You know, it's Mm -hmm. one of those things where it's a theme in the episode. He knows that there are other people in the village who are also prisoners who may be able to help him get out or be interested in helping him, but he only does it in this episode. So this is like his, his team attempted an escape uh, in this, uh, in this episode. Yeah. He put in a a crack team together. (laughs) (laughs) Of uh, random people from from all over the village. Yes, McGowan's eleven. <laughs> Although, uh, as a duo together, number six and the rook, they do kind of remind me of uh, Danger Mouse and Penfold. <laughs> they do. <laughs> but then, uh, as they're putting that little group together, uh, at one point you see number two observing them huddled around a table chatting about something, but they've obviously got to whatever surveillance equipment was going to be able to provide them with audio of whatever it is they're saying um so number two can't hear them but is now very suspicious that number six is up to something uh, because he's 
acting, well, not like his usual self, really. He would never normally be that chatty with other people. Mm. So uh, he orders the electrics to get fixed and to bring number six in for tests. Mm. It's interesting that the idea, again, is that six is not somebody who's ever been observed to collaborate with others in the village. Mm. So that's what they see as a trait that something is, is not right and something they need to figure out. Cat, dog, rain, shine, desk, work, hope, anchor. Anchor? Hope and anchors, puppies to drink out. <laughs> Tree. Leaf. Home. Away. Return. Game. Love. Game. Game. Tennis. Table. Chair. Ship. Shape. Red. Sail. Free. For all. So Six has been given a word association test, <laughs> uh, which he's very quick-witted at. I particularly like the uh, hope being followed by anchor. And his explanation that it's a pub that he used to drink and called <laughs> the Hope and Anchor. Um, and also the fact that he follows up free with for all. Yeah, and earlier on in the episode, they've uh, they've also checkmates. Maybe this is the only episode of The Prisoner in which two Prisoner episode titles are said <laughs> in the episode. That's random, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, one of the psychiatrist's assistants is carrying this out. And in the meantime, the psychiatrist herself is uh, having a chat with number two saying that she's run a barrage of other tests on number six, and he has positive signs of abnormality, (laughs) (laughs) and that he has a total disregard for personal safety and a negative reaction to pain. Now, I would think most people would have a negative reaction (laughs) to pain, probably not total disregard for (laughs) your own personal safety, uh, which they conclude would be impossible to fake. And as they're discussing number six, another assistant... um, brings in uh, the Queen, who is brought in uh, in a wheelchair, in a sort of comatose state, really. And the psychiatrist explains that this is a new experiment, and that it's based on experiments that were done on dolphins during the war to implant transistors in their brains to detect submarines. And again, I wonder which side of the war's experiment she's Mm. referring to. But it's also another wonderful kind of spy concept that only people who had, you know, had some kind of role in military intelligence might know had existed, whichever military it was whose mm. intelligence you were a part of. Yeah, it's it's weird because it does give a bit of context to what is going on, but not enough for you to figure out which side the village is on and when this is even taking place. I love the fact that, you know, it's a reference to war. And yet in an earlier episode, I think it's with one of the military characters in the village, Six has asked him, you know, which... Yeah, it's when he asked the Admiral, um, or the General, (laughs) or the Major, um, (laughs) you know, where his platoon was stationed, which Mm -hmm. war that was in, and things like that. And there he got no answer. Whereas here it's... Here they're giving a little bit more information about the, the root of some of the information they're using to run these experiments comes from. You know, it's clearly something linked to military intelligence but it's unclear if it's intelligence that they have gathered or that they have stolen you know know, which would then place it on on opposite sides um in any case it's it's an extremely bizarre and quite quite sinister aspect of things they're talking about experiments being done on animals and then just doing them on people and all these experiments were always ones that they they seem to be just trialing Mm. um so it's clear that they're getting a little bit of information enough to make them think let's try this and then it becomes a new thing that they're going to do in the village 
So they haven't gone quite as far as to implant something in the Queen's brain. It's a phrase I thought I'd never say. <laughs> uh, but what they have done is um, essentially hypnotised her into believing that she's in love with number six and number six is in love with her. And then they give her a locket to her on a chain around her neck that has a transistor in it which will monitor... It, it, it's essentially a Fitbit, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to monitor her heart rate and her blood pressure somehow uh, and feed that information back to the village authorities who will then be able to tell whether she's near him or away from him or whether he's in danger or whether he's trying to escape. Essentially, the idea is that she will become a human alarm system, mm-hmm. just following him around and observing him and getting agitated if she thinks that she's going to lose him for some reason. And potentially even turn him in for mm. his own good, of course, uh, if he was planning to escape. Yeah, I love your idea that it, it basically functions like a Fitbit because it's one of those wonderful examples of how far ahead of its time this show was. Not in deliberately trying to you know predict the future, but actually the way it, it thought about how ultimately a sinister side could set up a covert village where they would need to do certain kinds of surveillance, certain kinds of manipulation. Um, And they must have just thought what kinds of technology would we have in an ideal world that could be used to fill in these plot points. So, you know, the fact that you have this Fitbit style thing now is really cool. The fact we've seen things that, that preempt video calling and, you know, the idea of how extensive surveillance actually is with with cameras and, and audio bugs and things like that. I know on one hand you can say they're all spy things, but I love the fact that they just put these things into a TV show. I, and I know we didn't mention it earlier, but they're putting quite quite intelligent ideas into a, you know, a Sunday night drama. <laughs> you know, even, even name dropping, you know, Pavlov is pretty impressive for, you know, like a show that would have been on you know, in the uh, in the call the midwife slot. <laughs> but it also makes you wonder what applications you could actually put to large amounts of data if everybody was wearing, you know, Fitbits hmm. or smartwatches that monitored them all the time. You know, if you suddenly had a large group of people all in one place whose heart rates all suddenly went up, would that trip an alarm somewhere saying hmm. that, that something very bad was happening in that hmm. space and send an emergency response. I mean, you could do all sorts of things. Yeah, it fits with the idea that sometimes there is potentially a military presence which is controlling what the village is doing. We saw it most notably, I think, in in the general, mm-hmm. where you have the military police kind of floating around uh, towards the end of the episode. It's almost like the village is, is somewhere where these things can get tested. So some episodes of The Prisoner imply that this is a place designed to break number six. Other episodes imply like that, that it is a place where um, you know weird experiments can be tested or indeed I think as we discussed in the general maybe maybe the military can buy time in the village where they can say can you perform these experiments for us and the other thing which is only really prevalent in this episode is you know, is the village a place where lots of people are being kept and a significant proportion are fully aware that they are prisoners and have decided that one one aspect of them being able to survive without being brainwashed into conforming is that they have to just accept the oppression, which seems to be the state of a lot of the other characters in this episode who are the prisoners, but who 
almost have given up hope of finding other like-minded people who might be able to launch a successful escape. Yeah, and I do wonder if some of these ideas of you know experiments that had been started by some kind of military intelligence or in wartime and then fed into experiments on people afterwards is some of the influence coming from George Markstein. So the supervisor and the psychiatrist watch as number six leaves the hospital and the Queen pursues him and they're checking to see what reactions they're monitoring from this uh, device that's been put inside the pendant um, that they can tell when it is that she's able to see him because her heart rate goes up. And uh, it's quite creepy, really, that it seems (laughs) to be working. Their intention is to program her directly into the alarm system so that an alarm will go off if something happens that they think needs investigating. And number two arrives, and uh, it's very Nurse Ratchet, but uh, they're talking about the results from number six's tests. And she exclaims that, you know, he's an aggressive individual, and that uh, he should be given a leukotomy to knock out the aggression. <laughs> Which is essentially a form of lobotomy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's just another word for it. It's. I think you're right. I, I what you said earlier as well about the fact that she's doing that kind of thing of being, you know, the medical professional who probably wants to go for the brute force approach, which is obviously not what the village want to do. But I like the fact that she's completely blunt with these ideas. It's just like... <laughs> And throws these things out. And clearly she has been in charge of running these kinds of experiments for a while because they ask her opinion. This is what she says she needs to do. And earlier on in the episode, you've had number two asking her what her opinion is of the, you know, the extent to which the conditioning is working and things like that. So so they put a lot of faith in these scientists and pseudo medical professionals in the village. You know, it asks the question, you know, where do these people come from to end up in this role? But it's clear that there is a strong link between what the village is for and the people who they want to have enforcing the village's way on people. Because clearly some aspects are military, some are seemingly governmental as well, and other aspects are medical as well. It's almost like all the aspects of of the of the state have have turned on its own people mm-hmm. you know every aspect that is there to help and protect the people has now become an enemy of it and i think this episode encapsulates lots of those uh, themes by showing that the village has has uh many ways to to uh, deal with its citizens mm-hmm. um and maybe that's reflected because the episode is so strongly focused on the idea of of prisoners and guardians and they want to really stress that mm. But luckily for number six, uh, number two is there to say that he's too valuable for this to be done to. <laughs> so he uh, lived to see another day. So number six grabs a mini moak taxi uh, and he's off to pick up the rook to continue with uh, their plan. And the queen is after them. I think she steals the taxi herself in order to chase mm. after him. And we get the action music. Uh, which we haven't heard in a while. And it's clear that the supervisor who's watching is not doing anything to stop the Queen because part of the plan is to get the Queen to track him and, and work out how the information is relayed via the via the locket as well. Yeah, they, w- they want to test it properly. Yeah. So they're not going to send Rover after anyone yeah. at this point because they want to see if this technology is going to work. And the whole thing is being monitored or, or at least uh, the information from the surveillance is being relayed to number two the whole time so he's aware of what's going on. Yeah. Number six 
drives by to where he's picking the rook up and they speed off to another part of the village in order to uh, carry out the next phase of the plan. So the supervisor realises that the queen must have lost number six um, because they're seeing the reaction on the on her um, heart rate. So they start looking for number six using the monitors. But now number six and the rook are busy dismantling the monitor that they're searching for them on, um, which is the world's biggest CCTV camera by the looks of it. Um, from its perch in order to steal it to take away for parts and it, this is a really cunning plan really because first they steal the monitor knowing that uh, the supervisor will send an electrics truck out to repair it because number six would have seen the electrics truck in arrival when they came to repair his radio mm. uh, in his flat but he might have gotten confused with the gardener <laughs> uh, and while the electric truck is on its way, they drive to a different part of the village where the rook steals one of the funky cordless phones yeah. from a phone booth, uh, which you can only use to call in the village anyway. Uh, and then once they've stolen that, they go back to the crossroads where they know the electric truck will now be in order to repair the broken monitor. And they then raid the electric truck for the extra parts that they want out the back of it. Yeah, it's a nice little bit of, of scheming that they put in here mm. um it's part of that whole spy motif i think they have in this episode where they're really trying to show how intricate the plans are I and mean, this is this is the bit of the prison break movie where uh the prisoners have to you know steal things from the from the canteen <laughs> you know they have to do some underhand things maybe back in their cells to kind of you know dismantle something and steal you know, steal a walkie-talkie from a guard. It's that kind of element of of the prison break trope which they have in this episode, which I love. And this is, you know, you know the scene is, it's just very cleverly plotted how in a few seconds they've, they've uh, you know, traversed different parts of the village to actually, you know, carry out this plan. And also it's now clear why, you know, they've introduced the Rook as this electrical engineer because it's mm. clear they're going to try and, uh, you know, use his skills to build something. Um, they modified the van. <laughs> <laughs> what I also like is the fact that the uh, the electrics dude who comes to fix the cameras looks a lot like Bob Hoskins in the Super Mario Brothers movie, <laughs> <laughs> which says a lot because it doesn't look like Super Mario. It doesn't look like Bob Hoskins normally, but it looks like how he looked when he was dressed up to be a bit like Super Mario in that movie. Which no one has seen. Is, is he Mira's cousin who no one talks about because he's an electrician or plumber? <laughs> <laughs> but maybe he's a double. We don't know. Uh, doppelganger. So as Six and the Rook are driving, Six realises that uh, the Queen has now spotted them. Yeah. So he realises that they need to hide all the gear that they've just nicked from their little trip around the village stealing all the electrical equipment. Um, so he gets out and lets the rook continue so he can hide everything. He's kind of standing around and he waits for the queen to catch up. And when she spots him, she pulls over. He gets in and says, you know, are you going you going in my direction or something like that? Yeah. Are you uh, going to go my way? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that. I was thinking of it, but I didn't say that. <laughs> and you did. That's all I'm going to say about that. You didn't have to. I was restraining myself. You could have shown similar restraint. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh it, it it's weird you see that 
that look on her face. I mean, she's been hypnotised and she's delighted to see him. Mm. She's grinning again. I mean, before they had those shots of her looking and she looks completely confused, but kind of blank as well. Like her only mission is to find number six, find number six. And now uh, she's found him. She's really happy to see him. I mean, obviously she's, you know, she's had her, her mind manipulated into believing that she's in love with him and that he loves her. Um, but, you know, she's excited in the car and she tells him that she loves him. Six uh, is not having any of it. I think it's, you know, it's not only Six in character uh, being a, you know, being very dismissive of uh, the Queen's advances, but this is also, I think, Patrick McGowan um, basically also making a statement about the fact that the only, the only way he's ever going to have any attempt at like a pseudo love interest in, in The Prisoner is if they have been brainwashed <laughs> by the malevolent forces of the village who are using methods that were based on putting implants into the minds of dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only circumstances in which you'll have any kind of romantic entanglement. And even then, uh, he'll brush it off completely. <laughs> He's a tough nut to crack, is number six. Well, he's waterproof. <laughs> but the, uh, the psychiatrist and the supervisor are now quite happy because their monitoring of the Queen suggests that she's now found number six. So they're quite relieved that it's all, it's all working now. Number six hasn't, you know, done a runner on their watch. So it's almost bedtime in uh, Six's cottage, and he's brushing his teeth, and then he realizes that the queen has got into his house <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is in the kitchen making uh, some hot chocolate. And ominously, uh, given that this has nothing to do with what's been seemingly part of her brainwashing, she seems to be whistling Pop Goes the Weasel, mm. which appears many times in the show and will appear more frequently as the show goes on. Yeah, and uh, he's a little bit alarmed to find her just pottering around in the kitchen <laughs> making hot chocolate. But she thinks this is the most normal thing in the world. Mm. She just pop around to make sure that, that he's all right. And at first he's quite angry and he's, you know, asking her, you know, who's put her up to this? He doesn't trust her at all. And when she breaks down, he kind of softens. And I think at this point, he realises that something must have been done to her. Yeah. That her reactions are are genuine in the moment, if not genuinely her, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, he, he's been in the village long enough to see what they do to people. And I think it's during the scene that he realises that they've done something to her mind. Because he's actually very kind to her after that. Mm. Um, and quite patiently trying to sort of get her to go away, but uh, he doesn't seem to be angry anymore. Yeah, I think at this point he realises that she is a prisoner who has been manipulated by the village against her will. And it goes back to what happened right at the top of the episode in the chess game, when I think she was genuine when she wanted to help him escape or at least find out about his plan. Um, and he's probably realising this now, that whereas he was applying these rules to everyone else. And I think at one point he even says, let's go and find our men, you know, when he's referring to the team he's what, you know, he's going to put together. It's interesting that he, he uses the term men and not mm. people or, or women even included in that. Um, he seems to be very dismissive of her up until this point because he believes that this test for determining who is a prisoner and who is a guardian, you know, will work forever. And he probably thinks that her assertiveness in wanting to find out if he is planning to escape and you know wanting to help and maybe offering some potential guidance on what 
might work, what doesn't work, he suspects that that makes her a guardian. So he, he probably believes that all of her behaviour up until this point is part of some ruse. But now when he realises that maybe he he should have used this same test on her, but actually thought about the fact that it's not as clear-cut as that because the village can manipulate people to behave in certain ways. I mean, this also starts blurring the lines between how far along he is in his plan, given that he's not really sure who he can trust at the moment and whether there are... It, maybe, although... The count at the beginning said that this was like simple psychology, you know, how you tell the difference between the people in the village. Maybe it's not that simple. And I think his realising this here is an interesting moment because he actually shows some empathy for somebody who is a victim of uh, the villagers' plans for once. Yeah, and I, I, I do love the, the last little exchange between the two of them because it's curfew and she has to leave. And when she says, may I see you again? And he very nonchalantly says, oh, yes, I'm here all the time. <laughs> see, when the prisoner wanted to be really funny, it could be really funny as well. <laughs> I like these little moments. I think that they, they add a bit of quirkiness to the, to the moment. And I think it adds to the idea of him trying to have much lighter interactions with her. Because he probably feels bad about how he's been treating her up until this moment. And next we have a, a short scene on the beach the following day between number two and the rook. And this is quite unusual because we don't often get to see exchanges between number two and other prisoners. Mm. We often see number two talking with members of staff and other people who are in on his plans. And with number six and with people who are with number six. But you very rarely see number two kind of intimidating someone who we know for certain is another prisoner. Yeah, but they've never also explored the idea of other prisoners in the village as much as they have in this episode. Mm. So he, he's having a chat with Rook, saying, you know, watch you don't overdo it. Keep taking your pills. wonder what pills those are. Clearly he's not taking them. Um, and, you know, go back to the hospital if you uh, get another fit of egotism, I think he calls it. <laughs> the cult of the individual. Yeah. Um, and when the Rook says that he doesn't like to bother people, he says, oh, no, it's no bother. No bother. You know, please go back and get your brain washed again. It's all <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, but Rook is just saying what he needs to say to get out of that situation mm. as fast as possible because he's got more important things to be getting on with, including whatever's in that picnic basket he's carrying along <laughs> the beach. <laughs> what I also really like is um, all the beach balls and stuff that you can see in the background are all kind of bold primary colours that you get on the village capes as well. Oh, that's true. I'd never, yeah, I'd never thought of that because you, you know, we think about those multicolored um, sort of motifs in the umbrellas and the capes, but actually, outside of the prisoner, you would most commonly associate them with with beach balls and mm. things like that, wouldn't you? That's nice. That's really nice. So the rook is left to go on his way. Uh, we see six uh, going to the beach as well to meet up with him. Um, and the nice thing about this scene, again, in an episode that has wonderful shots of a lot of parts of Port Marion that we don't see in other episodes, I think the bit that uh, you see in the background is um, the view sort of looking further along the beach from where the hotel is now, because you see uh, that clock tower and then you see along from it White Horses, which is the cottage that Patrick McGowan stayed in when he was filming The Prisoner. So that's, I think, one of the few times you see that in the whole series as well. Yeah, yeah, because it's just a little bit further out down the beach from the main part of the village that you very mm. rarely get a glimpse of it. But obviously the, the tide is nice and out and yeah. it's a nice sunny day and everyone's paddling and frolicking. Except for number six, he's still got his shoes on and his jacket <laughs> and he's just striding along the sand to a uh, convenient 
um, sort of beach hut tent. What would yeah. you call those things? Like a tent gazebo. It's like something of a Punch and Judy show. Yeah. <laughs> and inside is uh, the Rook, who is hastily looks like he's assembling something or building some electrical device. He's a little shocked at first until he realises it's it's uh, Six. And uh, Six has shown up with a couple of extra things, like an antenna or something, to help uh, the Rook make what he needs. The Rook also says he needs more transistors. And uh, so he can continue building um, what he wants. Six basically says he'll take care of all this stuff. And as he goes out of this funny beach tent thing, he meets the queen who is relaxing on the beach as well and asks him to join her. So number six and the queen have a chat on the beach. And number six again insists that uh, he he's not in love with her. <laughs> And she says, well, you know, if you don't love me, why did you give me this locket that has your picture on it? And he asks to see it. And when he opens it up, not only is there a picture of him inside, but there's a lot of very obvious wiring <laughs> in there too. Um, so under the pretense that he wants to get her a better photo to go inside it, she uh, reluctantly agrees to let him take it with him. And he dashes off to go and see the rook. So the Rook uh, knows what this item is and he explains to Six that it's basically been a portable tracking device that the Queen has had on her the whole time. However, he also thinks that parts of it can be used in the device that he's building as well. So there's some good that can come from the whole thing. At the same time, um, the supervisor has noticed that the tracking that the Queen was feeding back has uh, stopped and he's kind of upset. He speaks to the psychiatrist and says, look, there's something gone wrong with the device you've made. I think he says, you know, he suspects that maybe it's come, it's come off in the water or something like that. And now they're kind of concerned because they, they don't have a way to track number six anymore because uh, the Queen doesn't appear to have the locket anymore. Yeah, so they've, they're looking on the giant screen and they've got a camera moving all over the beach in like a sort of Where's Wally style panorama of Where's number six. And a lot of them address Where's Wally style as well in The Prisoner. <laughs> yes. Um, and when they finally do find number six, they're both quite relieved. And uh, the supervisor says, I wouldn't have liked to have been in your shoes if you'd have lost him. Yeah. So the first the first indication that there are consequences for people in this episode, I mean, usually it happens a lot in these things. Usually it's when a medical professional is like, I'm going to take number six's brain apart. Um, <laughs> that somebody warns him. And certainly in Dance of the Dead, our mm. previous episode, there's a lot of that with a doctor who wants to do things and wants to have his own way of uh, getting information from Six, but he's constantly turned down at every opportunity. Yeah. This happens now with the psychiatrist. But I also like the fact that the supervisor is making it very clear in that statement that even though nothing's gone wrong this time, it would have been the psychiatrist who got into trouble and not him <laughs> if they'd lost number six. Yeah. It was her device that stopped working and seemed to have disappeared somewhere. Yeah, they're very good at apportioning blame in, these, in mm. this uh, hierarchy that exists in the village. So number six, when they see him on the monitor, is buying something from one of the stalls. And when we see him again, he's back in the tent and they've got a giant inflatable raft, which I, I assume is what he just purchased. Yeah. Using work units from doing what? Because he never <laughs> seems to do any work. Uh, and he gave away all of his winnings from uh, Chinese Big Ben. Um, but they've, uh, they're all set for their plan and he's going to go and warn all their fellow conspirators that the plan is set for tonight tonight at moonset rook to queen's pawn six check tonight at moonset rook to queen's pawn six check so uh i think the plan is is referred to by code um for the time it's going to happen uh which is at moonset rook to king's pawn six mm. 
And uh, there's lots of scenes of basically all the people who Six has been revealing as prisoners earlier on in the episode. They're all kind of passing the information amongst each other that the plan has been put into motion for their for their break out of the prison that is the village. Yeah, so I think uh, who they've recruited, the, the painter, yep. who was painting the wall earlier. The, the count. Shop, yep. The count, yeah, the shopkeeper. And one of the other people who was in the chess game, I think it was... Um, one of the people on the opposing side that he chatted to during the chess game. Oh, is it the one who said he liked playing chess? Yes, yeah. yeah. I think it's him. He's got the same hat on from the back. Um, now, somebody in this group that they've recruited is played by uh, Patrick McGuinn's personal assistant. But mm. it's one of it's one of the, the gang of uh, escapees who I think doesn't have a a speaking line okay but is is one of the group yeah. so i, I kind of like to know which one it is but yeah apparently he's in there <laughs> and one by one they go around and they pass this code on to everybody else in the group so that they all know that tonight's the night they're going to try and make their escape but uh, again linking this episode with dance of the dead this mysterious code tonight at moonset rook to king's pawn six reminds me of the nonsense on the radio hmm. you know tonight the moon will turn the world silver or something like that. That yeah. doesn't make any sense when you hear it. But if you know what it means, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's like it's like coded spy talk, mm. um, which again, you know, read into that what you will about why why that's been chosen here. Because um, not everyone in, in the plan was involved in the chess game. Mm. And yet, yet they're still using chess terminology throughout. So the plan is set in motion. Now... What we see is number six uh, making a mayday call using the makeshift device that the Rook has made. And he's pretending to be uh, sending out a distress signal from a plane in trouble, which is received by um, a local ship, it seems, called the Polotska. And I think also this ship is the same one that was used uh, as the set in uh, Many Happy Returns. Yes. Is it it the same boat? Yeah, the Gunrunner's boat. Yeah. Yeah. And the voice of the person on the Polotska is uh, Robert Reedy, who <laughs> occasionally is the voice of a mysterious number two when they often don't want to reveal who it is, or they haven't recorded the lines with the number two actor or actress <laughs> in the opening credits. Yeah, so they send this Mayday call out, um, but conveniently hiding their coordinates, because they don't know where they are, mm. using some uh, crumpled paper to uh, pretend that they're, uh, they're breaking up. And... Uh, of course, the supervisor is intercepting this call uh, because they're monitoring all the airways around. And I'm surprised that the supervisor doesn't recognise Number Six's voice mm. on the call, but he doesn't. So um, he thinks it's a genuine Mayday call from a genuine ship that's going down mm. and that therefore they need to um, start looking for it themselves to make sure it doesn't come anywhere near them. Basically, as long as it isn't going to come anywhere near them, they're mm. just going to leave it to the Plotska to go and investigate. So, so far, so good for the plan. So number six and the rook take the dinghy out to the water and the plan is that the rook is going to go out with the device that he's built um, to try and either find the ship or wait until he sees number six's signal. Meanwhile, the supervisor and some kind of techie assistant are looking for radar signs of the down plane nearby they can hear a signal being given off from whatever beacon it is that that the rook has built into his device Mm. but they can't get a good radar signal 
um, from anything that looks like it might be a plane. And the uh, tech guy explains that they wouldn't be able to get a signal off something as small as a dinghy and that they can't get too good a signal too close to land or they'll get readings off the high buildings. Yeah, so it's clear that they still think that this is a uh, a real mayday call that mm. they're trying to follow up on and they know that it's something which is close by but they believe it's something that the Pilotska will deal with. So although they're kind of concerned as to what's going on, probably because they're suspicious of anything that is coming too close to the village, you know, via via sea, whatever whatever sea that actually is. <laughs> I think the plan is basically to uh, to see what's you know you know to, you know to see what happens if they can actually find survivors down there and things like that, and let the plotska take care of it. Whereas meanwhile, Six has well, so he's left the rook alone in the raft to keep sending out the transponder signal to um, I think to attract the uh, the plotska, and uh, he has gone to meet the rest of his team of uh, of Magoons Eleven over at the stone <laughs> boat. So as uh, members of the village are looking out from uh, the bell tower to see if they can see any signs of uh, a downed plane or anything in the waters around the village, Six is speaking to his fellow conspirators who are there waiting. Their plan is to, I think, essentially create a distraction for long enough that the Palotska can uh, find the raft with the rook in it and then that will be used to mediate their, their escape in time. So their plan is now to create a distraction whilst the transponder signal can uh, continue to be uh, set off in the hope that by the time the Polotska finds the Rook, uh, it'll be too late for the village to do anything about it, and therefore Six and his team can basically uh, get away, having had a chance to quickly tell Number Two and everyone that they managed to get one over on them. So Six is wary of the fact that uh, the village are watching the waters from the bell tower, so what he does, he takes, I think it's, the painter with him and they go and take out the two village guardians who are there manning it in the hope that that will disable the ability of the village to keep an eye on the water and uh, get wind of their plan too early before the plotska arrives yeah it also enables them to have a bit of fisticuffs standard itc fisticuffs uh, <laughs> inside the bell tower as uh, number six and the painter take on the two uh, standard issue striped goons um have a bit of a, a punch up in what is clearly a, a mocked up set of the inside of the bell yeah tower. just like one turn of the stairs yeah oh it's beautiful uh with just some kind of dark blue painted backdrop behind it for the night sky uh, and this is really bizarre moment where number six knocks one of the goons out of the well, it's not really a window it's just like an opening isn't it mm. an archway and you hear a splash afterwards as if the goon has landed in the water and of course, the bell tower isn't anywhere near the water. Yeah. You wouldn't land in water if you fell out the window. And the reason I think they did this is because if you really did throw someone out the archway at the top of the bell tower, you'd probably kill them. Mm. And I think they didn't want to have number six kill someone. Because uh-huh. you could infer otherwise that, that shoving someone out the window was at the very least going to cause them serious harm if not kill them from the fall. Mm. And they didn't want the hero of, you know, the big ITC action show to just callously hurl someone to their death yeah. and then carry on as if it was nothing. So by putting that splash sound effect in, you're basically telling the audience, they land in the water, therefore they're fine, therefore it's all okay for us to carry on, nobody's just died, basically. Yeah, a message that was later taken up by the A-team. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so with the goons at the uh, watchtower being taken out, this 
information is relayed to the supervisor who nervously has to call uh, number two, who is sitting on the floor of the control room. And he gets a message saying this has happened. And he says, I'll be right over. And then in probably one of the best moments in The Prisoner, if not television itself, uh, all of a sudden it's revealed that for some reason this number two is a huge karate fan <laughs> and he decides to uh, uh, break a, a wooden board which is in front of him whilst uh, shouting hi <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's about. Um, it's a wonderful moment, I think. Uh, it serves no real purpose. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the character that we've seen of number two. Um, and it's kind of just spliced in. I wonder if there are lots of outtakes of bits where the supervisor makes the call and it cuts to number two doing different things in the control room. <laughs> you know, it could be anything and they just chose that one. I mean, he could have been, I don't know, he could be, you know, riding a rocking horse. <laughs> and then he's just like, I'll be right over. <laughs> or he could have been, I don't know, making omelettes. And then he'd be like, I'll be right over. <laughs> but they're like, no, no, let's use the karate one because that's the most bizarre one that we can use. And then he uh, he gets up quite calmly, having broken this plank and uh, goes to find what's going on with the supervisor. <laughs> So while the Rook is out in the water, the rest of McGowan's Eleven take number two prisoner in the Green Dome. Uh, their intention is to tie him up for some reason while waiting for the ship to come. Never been entirely sure why that was necessarily part of the plan, but it was. Uh, and when they hear that the sort of transponder signal bleepy thing, uh, it's a technical term for it, has stopped, the rest of the gang think that the ship has come for them. But number six thinks it's too soon for the ship to have arrived mm. and something's gone wrong. Um, so he decides to leave number two in the care of the rest of the gang while he goes off to see what's happening with the rook and the signal. I hate to disappoint you, but the Palotska's our ship. The weather forecast was very bad. You wouldn't have stood a chance in that toy boat. I'm touched by your concern. What happened? Uh, there's been a slight misunderstanding. So Six goes to the shore again. He sees uh, the raft that he left the rook in abandoned on the shore. He looks out to sea and he can see that the boat, um, the Plotska, is out at sea. So he wants to know what's going on. He gets in the raft and he sails it probably quite a long distance. It doesn't seem that far, but, uh, but he, he seems to get it um, all the way to uh, to the Plotska, which is just uh, standing in the water. Well, it's crewed by I think a couple of people who mm. introduce themselves as the you know as as the crew of the MS Palotska. They want to know what's happened to the rest of his crew. So obviously they think that Six is a survivor of this plane crash, although we know that's not completely true. Um, and he goes on board, and as he is there waiting in sort of the cabin, I think there's a moment where the crew kind of leave him alone for a second. Mm. Uh, he looks at the. Uh, the TV monitor, which is inside, and who's on the screen, but number two is there. Yeah, sitting very comfy in his uh, globe chair, looking a bit smug. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, hey, to disappoint you, but the MS Plotska is our ship. Yeah. <laughs> number six wants to know what went wrong, at which point uh, number two brings the rook onto the screen hmm. and says there's been a slight misunderstanding. And when... The Rook accuses number six of being a guardian. Number two very sort of comically defends him, saying, oh, no, you mustn't malign number six. He's <laughs> not one of us. He's a prisoner. Uh, much to the Rook's horror. And uh, number two simply explains that 
the rook applied to number six, number six's own test to see who is a prisoner and who is a guardian, mm. and that number six's subconscious arrogance in taking command of the escape plan convinced the others that he was a guardian, not a prisoner. So it was the, the very arrogance that enabled him to begin that interaction with the rook mm. um, out uh, on that first day when he sort of chased him is the same thing that was ultimately his undoing because the rook simply well the, the, the rook assumed that he was a guardian the first time they met yeah and he came around to that conclusion again yeah and i think it's interesting that you know completing the you know the idea that this whole episode is structured like a chess game it's that moment at the end where it's revealed by number two that the Polotska is is uh, a village boat it's really nice because um, it plays into the idea that that number two was ahead of ahead of six the whole time so every move that was very strategic on the part of six to arrange everything and actually get into a formation involving other pieces on the board was actually being manipulated by the other player in a game of chess that he didn't realize he was actually playing so the mot- so in in a strange way i think uh six saw um, he basically, you know, he basically was involved in his own human game of chess throughout the whole episode because he mm. was being essentially manoeuvred quite a lot, as were lots of other people, just to have this set up at the end. That's actually quite similar to the bit at the end of um, the Schizoid Man when they let Number Six take off in the helicopter, mm. only to prove a point almost that you know they have that power to to give him his escape and also reveal that it's actually only something that they will that they can permit to happen and they will control it and they will never let it, you know, be the case. So that they've clearly had a sense of his plan for a while, but it's almost like they can rely on on the fact that it's not that simple to to kind of hack into the the independence of the other people. There is something unique about number six. You know, he is able to to retain his free will and his independent thought throughout all these different escapades whereas the others although they might seemingly be independent according to six's original test that the count introduces him to they're actually still very much trapped by the village they are actually quite paranoid themselves so although they haven't completely turned into the oppressed conformist prisoners that we've seen in other episodes they are basically hypersensitive to anything and everyone that could actually be a ruse. And I think that's also an element which has which has worked against a number six. And maybe that's why they don't go back to this again, you know, because they know that you can that six is the only one who has the independence to go through round after round of these mm. um, escape attempts. And despite being outmaneuvered on many occasions, he still has the persistence to keep going. And maybe it, it makes him think I can't rely on anyone else to be part of these plans. So although he does sometimes engage with other people in other episodes, he must just think, this is something I have to do on my own in later episodes, which is why they don't exploit the idea of other prisoners joining together to launch a rescue escape. And when number six inquires what's going to happen to uh, to his co-conspirators, uh, number two says that they'll be back tomorrow on the chessboard as pawns. <laughs> And he's got one single pawn that's still sitting on his uh, desk in front of him on the camera, um, at which point number six decides that more fisticuffs are in order. Yeah, round two of some ITC fisticuffs. Yeah. And so basically there's a, a lot of scrapping 
Um, hurling of ashtrays. The, hurling of ashtrays all over the boat with the two other uh, crew members of the Polotska. It's actually staged quite similarly to what happens in Many Happy Returns. Um, but that goes on uh, for a little while. And then at a certain point, uh, number two, who is watching this in, in a slightly disinterested way, as it, it's almost like he's getting bored of watching this fight. He wants it to wrap up pretty quickly. He probably wants to get back to his karate or something. Um, he then uh, pushes a button on his console. He sends Rover to uh, rise up from the depths of the sea and uh, chase after the Polotska and ultimately tow it back to shore as Six finds that he's unable to actually control uh, the boat with the wheel himself. Yeah, and as he does so, the butler very carefully replaces the pawn from the table onto the chessboard. And it is indeed the Queen's pawn, Mm. isn't it? Going back on its square as the uh, bars come down once again. So that was our discussion about the episode Checkmate, a classic episode of The Prisoner in many ways uh, because of how much prisoner iconography and mythology is built into this sort of 50 minutes of television. It's got everything that somebody who's familiar with the idea of the show uh, would want to see in an episode. And it's probably the kind of thing where if you showed it to somebody, they'd be like, oh yeah, that's The Prisoner. That, you know, this basically defines what the show was about in many respects from the way you know the way it looks um port marion the rovers an escape attempt number two winning the idea of you know free will the nature of uh, conforming the oppression that the village places on people the idea of prisoners and guardians i mean so many different things that come up again and again the prisoner are all in this uh, wonderful episode i think it's so beautifully plotted as well and there are great little spy motifs that take place throughout the episode as well again i think these are very strongly the the moments where you think uh either they were really mark steen's input or he was allowed to indulge a little bit in this one episode and and come up with a story that could have all this although it's written by uh uh, gerald kelsey i think i think this is really if you look at the show as a as a magoo and mark steen thing especially in the early episodes um i can see how that would have been a more Mark Steeny episode um, <laughs> than a uh, a Magooney one. Although I think that it actually balances quite well between you know the ideas that the prisoner was about and also the more straightforward storytelling that I think Mark Steen was probably more interested in. I mean, I think he wanted to have a a more traditional spy show than than Magoon was necessarily interested in. Maybe not at the beginning, but by the end, I think he wanted to go in a different direction. Uh, he wanted to use this show to to talk about different things and move it away from a canonical spy narrative. We do occasionally go on little uh, segues into Twin Peaks on this podcast. Obviously, Twin Peaks is another big show that we love. We've done a, a whole Twin Peaks podcast called Time for Pie and Coffee. And chess is something that becomes a very strong motif in the second season of the original run of Twin Peaks back in the 90s, Mm. um, when the character of Windham Earl starts pursuing Special Agent Dale Cooper, uh, Windham Earl being his former partner with the FBI, who has now, um, well, taken leave of his senses, really, would be (laughs) the uh, polite way of putting it, and is attempting to engage in what is effectively a a deadly human chess match with with Dale Cooper in... uh, killing people as he makes his chess moves and takes pieces off the board 
causing Cooper to need to uh, get help from one of the other residents for Twin Peaks to try and stalemate the game um, while losing as few pieces as possible. Yeah, it's. I mean, the se- I mean, a lot has been said about the second half of the second season of Twin Peaks. <laughs> one of the strengths of it, I think, is obviously not the uh, the James and Evelyn storyline, right? <laughs> um, or even uh, Ben Horn's Civil War plot, but it is it is the the Windham Earl Cooper plotline that I that I wish was just had a little bit more time and space to kind of build a little bit more. But the idea that it is a human chess game, um, I mean, maybe maybe what happens in Twin Peaks is actually in some warped way related to the story of uh, the old games that used to happen at the beginning of Checkmate, where, <laughs> where people were beheaded if they were, you know, you know, as soon as they were taken off the board in you know, The Prisoner. I mean, it's clear that, you know, uh, Mark Frost, who's one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks, was hugely influenced by The Prisoner. I don't think it's a it's a direct thing for that. I think he liked the idea of of chess as a as a way to explore the relationship between Cooper and Wyndham Earl. But, you know, the human chess game is 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 played out. The chess, you know, chess terms are used a lot. And I think there's even there's that scene where uh, there's the uh, the punk the punk kid, the party animal mm. dude, yeah. um, who gets killed in the giant in the giant chess pawn as well, um, as part of that ruse. I mean, there's a lot that we can say about chess and Twin Peaks, and we we fully restrained ourselves by not talking about it too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I will say is that later on in our run of uh, Tally Ho episodes about the prisoner, we will be doing something specifically about the links between the prisoner and Twin Peaks because yeah. we we think there's a lot to talk about um, just in light of the obvious references that do exist and the more sort of obscure connections, maybe some of the influences that you can see happening where, you know, a show a show like Twin Peaks and a show like The Prisoner have some interesting parallels in sort of what they did and how they were trying to do it, if not necessarily always in terms of the, the specifics of the content. But yeah, uh, we thought we'd flag that because I think it's an interesting thing that uh, two shows which are very close to our heart both have this this strong desire to use chess as a as a metaphor for how people can be manipulated um for uh reasons outside of their own control when two forces are sort of going after a much bigger war and they're sort of waging the pieces against each other and in this case the pieces are real people who are being manipulated yeah, you know, you know what this is suddenly reminding me of now hmm. is a Christopher Lambert movie from I think the early nineties called Night Moves, but Night with a K, hmm. and that he was a chess champion, and there was some kind of serial killer who was on the loose who was killing people in to make chess moves to play a chess game against him, and I'm pretty sure I watched it. It was one of those films that they used to put on in the middle of the night on BBC One for no apparent reason. Or on a Saturday night at like at like eleven eleven thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. After, it... after after match of the day, that kind of weird time and they'd put something on that would last until the early hours. Yeah, they used to put they used to put random films on. Um and I I remember watching it. I was probably far too young to be watching it, but strange, strange film. But yeah, again, human chess. Yeah. And I can promise you that we won't be doing a special episode about the Christophe Lambert movie Night Moves. Um, I think that's too tangential even for us. But uh, yeah, I wonder if other things have, you know, have used the idea of human chess. I mean, it's, it's a, it is a it is a thing that people do do. Um, 
obviously not with the outcome of uh, people being killed uh, or it being used as a as a means of uh, oppression <laughs> by uh, the village overlords yeah. to keep tabs on the prisoners. Or a means of allocating parking for the careers fair at Greendale Community College. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Now that we could do a bonus episode on. <laughs> but now, as promised at the top of the episode, uh, we move on from our chat about Checkmate to um, a really cool interview that we had uh, with Rick Davey of the Unmutual website. Now, he will be known to Tally Ho listeners and indeed all Prisoner fans as the curator of the Unmutual fan website, which is the biggest Prisoner fan website in the world. Um, It's a tremendous resource for anyone who's interested in the show. And uh, Rick has been actively involved in helping keep the spirit of the show alive, uh, not only through the website, but also... Uh, lots of publications and indeed more recently especially with the 50th anniversary of the prisoner and the upcoming well this is the 90th anniversary year of uh, Patrick McGowan's birth some of the events which he's helped organize uh, which celebrate the prisoner and Patrick McGowan um, and we would like to sit down with him to talk about his thoughts about checkmate which is one of his favorite episodes as well Uh, he has some wonderful snippets from the behind the scenes aspects of it and also talks a little bit about the upcoming elstree event which is called not a number which is happening in london on june 23rd i believe which will be a celebration of patrick mcgoon so it was a great chat we hope you enjoy it and here it is information information so we're delighted to be joined this time by Rick Davey. Uh, he'll be no stranger to anyone who's listened to our Tallyho podcast before because he's provided our wonderful fortnightly roundups of what's happening in the world of the prisoner. But this time he's with us to talk all about Checkmate. Hi, Rick. Hi, great to speak to you. Thanks very much for having me on um, in a non-news capacity, <laughs> which is great. It's uh, nice to not to be reading from a script. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, we're talking all about Checkmate this time. Uh, what is it that you particularly like about the episode? Yeah, I mean, obviously when it comes to The Prisoner, I love all the episodes. It annoys me a bit when people go on to social media or other places and say, oh, what's your least favourite episode? Or I don't think these episodes are very good. I think they're all great. But Checkmate, for me, is the, is the, is the pinnacle of the series because I think it encapsulates all the aspects of the series which are brilliant. So... It's got a great underlying message, of course, you know, uh, of, of, you know, us all being pawns and so on. I also think it's got a lot of Port Merion in it, which I think is brilliant that Port Merion adds so much to the series that if, uh, the episodes that aren't Port Merion or that are Port Merion heavy weren't there, I don't think the series would be the same. So it's got a lot of Port Merion in it. It's got some great guest star performances in it, which I think uh, really help the episode along. Peter Wingard's fantastic. Ronald Brad is fantastic. George Kalouris is great. And Rosalie Crutchley, who plays the Queen, is, is fantastic. Some really good performances. It's also got a nice production story to it. There's some interesting little things that you learn about the episode once you get past watching it and enjoying it for what it is. You can read into a bit about the production story as well. So it's got each of the elements that I love The Prisoner for, which is a good story, good bit of action, Visually fantastic, some great acting, and the writing I think is absolutely superb. I mean, to think that this episode was constructed all from the fact that Gerald Kelsey, the writer, saw a human chess game going on in a castle while he was in holiday in Germany. To build this episode out of that, especially when he hadn't seen any other episodes, he he thought he was just writing episode two, 
having been given a bit of a sort of spill from George Markstein as to what it was all about. I just think it, it has all the elements to make The Prisoner brilliant all in one episode. And it's, a, it, you know, if I was to do a sort of TV heaven, as has happened in the past, where they say, oh, pick one episode of The Prisoner to show, I think it would really be this or Dance of the Dead that I think best encapsulates the series, other than Arrival, of course, which sets the scene. If you take Arrival out of the, the, the scenario, I think this or Dance of the Dead are the episodes which really sum up the series in 50 minutes. In many ways, the, some of the visual aspects of this episode have become emblematic of the series, that when people think of The Prisoner, they often think of the chess game, um, or, or, or some of the, the visuals that are in this episode. It's, it sort of becomes synonymous with the entire series, in a way. I think it has, and that's what's interesting about something that's happened in Port Marion in recent years, is that, I don't know if people know, they've put down a permanent uh, concrete chessboard in Port Marion, in place of where the, you know, the chess game took place. Because apparently people were constantly going to Port Marion and saying, where's the chessboard? Where, where's the chessboard? I've seen the prisoner. Where's the chessboard? Mm-hmm. Now, it's only in one episode, and, and it's only in the first 10 minutes of the episode, and I think you see it once later on when, when number six follows the rook across the board. Um, so for only to be in 10 minutes of the series yet, as you say, it's, it's totally linked now to the prisoner series as a whole. If you say to someone, do you remember the prisoner? Oh, yes, that was that thing with the giant balloon. With the, with the pipe blazers and, and the human chess. Mm. With, uh, so you're exactly right. But it does it has Rover as well um, at the beginning and at the end. It does have some great elements that appear throughout the series. There's, there's aspects of the control room. There's stuff in the hospital. It has a bit of everything, doesn't it? Mm. You talked about the, uh, the amount of location filming that's in this one in Port Marion. Do you think that was a product of it being shot quite early in the production run, even though it goes out at episode nine. Yeah, that's exactly right. They filmed four episodes initially when they came to Port Marion for a month in September 1966, and that was Arrival, Dance of the Dead, uh, Checkmates, and Free for All. They were meant to do a bit more with Chimes of Big Ben, but they ran out of time and only filmed a couple of shots for that episode. Um, And when we talk about, I know you have talked about on several podcasts, that uh, one can change the ordering of the episodes to to fit what we see on screen and maybe the, the screening order isn't the most natural order for the episode. I think that's very true. This, I think, is an early episode. I think number six appears to be still fairly new um, and I think um, the man with the stick uh, says the line, you must be new here. And um, you're right that the fact that it, it features a lot of Port Marion is down to the fact that it was one of those initial four episodes um, that was meant to have all the all the location work done on Port Marion. Later episodes, of course, they they build a, a Port Marion set in the studio. But I think visually, the best episodes almost are the ones that are filmed in Port Marion because you can tell it's not a set. I know we try not to look into these things, but there are some episodes where you know it's a set and it feels like a set and it feels a little bit more claustrophobic. But visually, uh, Checkmate's brilliant because it shows parts of Port Marion as well that you don't really see in many other episodes. You get the stuff in front of White Horses and in front of the lighthouse down on the beach. You don't see that in many episodes. Um, and of course, White Horses was where Patrick McGowan and his family stayed during the filming. And there's a quick shot in, in Checkmate when you see somebody walking across the beach and you can see a young girl on the balcony of White Horses. And there's been much conjecture that that is one of Patrick McGowan's daughters. <laughs> is standing there watching the filming taking place. I'd love to believe that that was true. Um, but you also uh, see stuff by Government House on the, on the lawn near Watch House where the rook is talking to number six. You only see that in, in one other episode. Uh, you also see some stuff out by the hospital or the castle as it is in real life with the mokes driving in and out. 
so you see bits of problem that you don't see in any other episode. And I think that adds to the attraction of it as well. Um, in that you're seeing bits that you're learning more about Port Merion as well. And, I mean, that's another great thing about the prisoner. Um, I know you've both been to Port Merion. The prisoner village is nothing like Port Merion in terms of the layout. You watch a prisoner episode and you see number six come from one direction. Uh, and then he appears somewhere else where you think, but he can't be there because he's just gone through that arch. So how is he all the way up there by Bridge House or whatever when he's clearly just come out of the town hall? But again, that's just the excellence, I think, of the, the people filming. Because I, when I first saw the prisoner, I'd never been to Port Marion. So I had no idea that they were playing these tricks on me visually. It's only when you get to Port Marion that you realise that. So again, that's, that's another little tick to go by the production team, isn't it? It's to say, really, really well done. You've created this huge village world out of a tiny, tiny village. Yes, it, it is slightly surprising when, when you get there and it seems smaller than it is. Because it, in it some is. of the aerial shots, you do see the the size of it, but on the ground, it, it feels like there ought to be more places to get from what... It, it, it almost has a sort of magical quality in, in it. Um, yeah, no, I, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. I call, I, call it, I call it the opposite TARDIS effect, in that it really is much smaller on the inside. <laughs> Um, and but again, people have said, "Oh, if it wasn't for Port Marion, would the prisoner be the same?" I really don't think it would be. Yes, the themes would still be the same. It would still be a work of genius in its writing and so on. But Port Marion really does add something. And when you're watching Checkmate, this particularly comes out. They were very lucky with the weather. I don't know how Checkmate would look if it was a bit sort of rainy and drab. Um, as, as summer free for all actually is kind of a little bit sort of overcast and dark. And I think that fits that episode because it is a kind of darker episode. Whereas Checkmate, I think it, it suits the, the sort of sunshine and you get that great balance where it's all sunshine and light and then they're, they're in the control room and everything's a bit more sinister again. Uh, uh, but that adds to the sort of the holiday camp atmosphere that they wanted the village as a fictional village to be, um, which Port Merion and, and obviously the design of the series with the, with the coloured canopies and all that sort of thing um, adds to and speaking of the TARDIS, just watching this episode again recently, it struck me that Peter Wingard would have made a really excellent Doctor, I think, um, back in the day. He would have done. He would have done, wouldn't he? He'd have been absolutely fantastic. Of course, Peter, we only lost last year, of course, and probably synonymous really with, with Jason King. But you're exactly right that he would have been a fantastic Doctor. And for all the... You can, uh, you can look out for this. You probably already know the answer to this because you are experts beyond belief. But there is an episode with a TARDIS in it. I don't know if you know which Prisoner episode that is. If you don't, then I won't spoil the surprise. I've given you a surprise to look forward to. There is a Prisoner (laughs) episode, which you have not covered yet, I have to say, in your podcast, where a TARDIS can be seen on screen. Well, that's, that's a challenge for us now to, to figure out where it is as we go through the rest yeah, of the series. <laughs> one for your listeners there for, to, um, to look out for as well. I hope they, if any of them spot it before um, Bex and Eason do, please don't, um, please don't write in because you'll spoil the surprise for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you mentioned that um, Peter Wingard passed away quite recently. And I think he was, all, all the way through, he was... Um, quite generous with prisoner fandom and people being interested in the show and going to events and things like that wasn't he he was he was and obviously he went to the 50th anniversary event in Port Marion in September despite obviously not being in in great health you know he was there in a wheelchair in a, in a white robe you know because he was he was really not well but whenever you went to a, a sort of memorabilia affair and he was there signing his autographs he was always um, um very pleasant and um 
what's interesting about Checkmate is that so many of the uh, the other guest cast died so long ago. So although the prisoner has had sort of a renaissance in recent years in terms of picking up new fans and and conventions and, and events and things like that. Sadly, people like Ronald Rad and, and George Kalouis were not really around to in, to enjoy that, which I think is a shame, because Peter certainly enjoyed um, the things that he did. I know that Rosalie Crutchley, I think, gave one interview, I think, over the phone to someone, but that, that was kind of as far as it went there. Um, but yes, Peter was a great character, and he would have made a, a great Doctor. But a few of the number twos would have made a good doctor, I think. Yes. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen Leo McKern as the doctor? Oh, it might yes. sound wacky, but it might sound wacky, but I think it'd have been brilliant. Very hard, you know, a bit of a sort of Hartnell temper there. Um, but there, there are other ones as well, you know, I think Colin Gordon would have been quite amusing, but maybe not. Yes. In, in some ways, the the new number two, it's almost like they, they're regenerating like the doctor every time it comes through. <laughs> that's a very good... Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. theory I always had was, um, I know you, you haven't covered this episode yet, but maybe you could bring this up as a discussion point in it, is the episode It's Your Funeral um, is based around the fact that there is a retiring number two and he's been on leave for some time and that Darren Nesbitt is, is the, sort of one of the number twos that's been taking, you know, taking part in his absence or whatever. And then halfway through the episode, these other two number twos pop up very briefly in recordings and so on. I've always had a, a bit of a theory, which probably doesn't hold much water once you analyse it, but all the number twos in the series are actually all interim number twos waiting for the old guy from It's Your Funeral to come back off his holiday. And that's why they're replaced so often, because they're only there for a week or so. They're just civil servants drafted in. Probably explains why none of them are actually particularly very good at breaking number six. Um, <laughs> um, so that's, that's, one, that's one theory as to, as to why there are so many number twos in the series. I think you two are probably better at theorising than I am because um, you do manage to fill those hours every uh, every podcast with, with various things. But um, that's something that's something to think about, because you look at someone like Peter Wingard's number two, and you think, well, why did the whoever runs the village? He did brilliantly, because he, he totally, you know, pulled number six in hook, line, and sink, you know, and, and number six was defeated at the end. Why wasn't he given another bash? You know, he, him and that, that lady doctor um, would have been quite severe with number six and might well have got some answers to the questions yes especially when you consider that colin gordon's number two gets a second chance even though he messes it up both times <laughs> <laughs> he does he probably messes it up both times doesn't he yeah so um, it's interesting that he's given another go but he clearly really wasn't ready for a for a second bite of the cherry uh, but that's, that's, that's true of a few of the uh, of the number two now mary morris definitely doesn't lose she's in control of the whole of dance of the dead mm. um sorry one wonders why she was not uh she was not there. I would love to have seen another one with her. I'd have loved to have seen a whole episode with Rachel Herbert, who, of course, appears at the end of Freefall and is revealed as the new number two there. Mm. I'd have loved to have seen that, um, you know, sternness brought to a, a full episode. But, hey, I, I'm sitting here sounding like I'm complaining about The Prisoner. <laughs> I'm really not, because it is, it is utterly fantastic. And another thing about Checkmate, which I think is, um, is really interesting, um, is the number of little interesting little curios that come up as you go along. There's a lot of episodes of The Prisoner where there are long scenes uh, and not too much um, going on. But I think Checkmate runs a really, really fast pace, and there's something new to see in, in every scene, some new aspect of what The Prisoner can be about and who these people are. There's a, a great sequence where you know he's interrogating the rook outside Watch House, and the rook says, you know, he, he's the scientist or whatever, and he, he let the plans get stolen and so forth. And then you think, wow... Are they all scientists? Is number six a spy? 
McGowan himself said, oh, you know, he could just as easily be a scientist as a spy. And that scene does sort of make you think, you know, why are all those people there? They're not all obviously all spies. They all have different purposes. So who is number six? And it gets you thinking as to uh, why these people are there. And then there are little curios as well. As you probably already know, the captain of the MS Polotska, well, not the captain, the uh, the one that calls number six aboard and said, you know, I want to speak to your skipper. Hmm. That's Jason Donovan's dad. Really? This man on the boat. <laughs> it is, yeah. Who, very famous for playing a character in Neighbours called Doug Willis. Um, his name's Terence Donovan, and, and one of his first roles was as a bit part as a sailor in The Prisoner. So there's a bit of interesting fact. He never, never say that. I can't give you a prison fact um, <laughs> every time we speak. But there's little things like that throughout Checkmate. Loads of little interesting little bits and little continuity errors. I mean, if you listen to the chess game, some of the moves don't make sense. There's no such thing as knight to knight, bishop three, for example. Um, but yet that apparently is a move because it's, it's called out and somebody moves. Um, but there's loads of little curios throughout Checkmate. And I don't think that's true of all the episodes. Some of the episodes, whilst brilliant, don't quite have those little little factoids as you go along. And, you know, I'm probably a bit anal, really, but I love that about The Prisoner. I love that it, there's so so many interesting things. about Every scene's got a story behind it or something interesting behind it. You don't get that in, no disrespect, you don't get that in Doctor Who, in Blake 7, and any of the other shows that we all love. Mm. You don't get a story in every scene. But you do in the prisoner, and I think that's that's testament to the to the series production and to the writers. I think it's especially true of Checkmate. I think every scene does have two or three really interesting stories, either about cast members or about the shooting of it, or about what you see on screen, or as I mentioned there about the conversation between Six and the Rook. There is something there to get your teeth into if you really want to explore what the prisoner's about, who these people are, what sides running the village. You get that in Checkmate a lot more, I think, than in some other episodes. When I look at that, the, the actual scene where the big game of chess is taking place, it always seems like it must have been a continuity nightmare to make that, because you've got so many people who are all supposed to be in exactly the same place, looking exactly the same way in every shot. Yeah, in fact, I think the continuity lady at the time, I think, did say that was the scene that she hated doing the most for that very reason. I've never sat there and actually watched, I, I don't think even I would go this far, watched frame by frame to see if the, the, the pieces are standing in different places um, without having moved, if you see what I mean. You know, two people have swapped because they couldn't remember what square they were supposed to be standing on or whatever. But I know that somebody did try and play an entire game of chess based on the moves in the game, and it just didn't work, as I say, because some of the moves were impossible. But yeah, absolute nightmare for people. But it was only shot over the course of a, a couple of days, the chess match, so they, they did really well to, to get together what they got together, because for those first four episodes, they were only there a month, and they spent a long time on arrival with things going wrong, such as the original Rover uh, and things like that, mm. and they were falling behind a bit because Don Chaffee had a kind of direction which was more suited to feature films than for television. Um, and that, I think that was one of the reasons why him and McGowan fell out in the end and Don Chaffee didn't work beyond the sort of first few episodes. Um, I know there's a famous quote from, I think it was Mickey O'Toole, the propsman, said that McGowan at one point went up to Don Chaffee and said, no, 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 I want big heads. It's for the television. You need big heads. Because <laughs> he's so used to filming for a massive screen, um, you know, being a cinema film director. That, you know, McGowan was really trying to say, look, they're watching this on a little box in the corner of the room. You can't do all these long shots. No one will see it. It will just be two dots on a screen. Um, and I think that whilst it's, we can watch it now and look at the cinematic beauty of The Prisoner, you can sort of see what, what McGowan means in some respects. Yeah, and 
In fact, although this episode is in in the credits, it says directed by Don Chaffee. I think he actually just did the location stuff and did Patrick McGowan finish a lot of it off in the studio? I think he did. Don, Don Chaffee was present in the studio. He did do some studio stuff. He didn't just do the location stuff. But yes, um, it, he did. McGowan did finish a lot of this off. There was one, the, the famous scene in the episode that was, was definitely done by McGowan because it wasn't in the original first draft of the script was the one where he's making some cocoa or the queen comes in and makes and we some cocoa. Basically, they were, they were two or three minutes short. They said, oh, we, we need an extra scene. This was filmed by the second unit with Bob Monks um, doing the camera um, camera work. And um, they said, we've got to film this extra scene. We'll, we'll, we'll put this scene in about, you know, having a cup of cocoa or whatever. <laughs> um, but you've got to remember, these were huge cameras. And it was a, quite a tender scene where everyone needed to be quiet. So the whole crew were told to about, to, about to take their shoes off so they could creep around and film uh, Rosalie Crutchley and Patrick McGowan doing this scene because when they had shoes on all you could hear was the clunking of the of the crew as they wandered around with the cameras and so on Yeah, it's, One thing that strikes me about this episode is that I think that scene is the only scene of any length that takes place in number six's home and in, in some of the other episodes there's actually quite a lot that takes place in his cottage but with this it there's so much location shooting, but also so much happening in other places like the hospital. Um, yeah. It, 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 it seems to kind of expand a bit more out through the village than some of the other ones do. Yes, it does. And I, I really like that about this episode. And you're exactly right that we do get to see what goes on in, in various places more than we do in other episodes. You say you get an insight into what they do in the hospital. It's not really a hospital. It's an experimentation unit, isn't it, really? <laughs> It's not, you know, they don't take people there to make them better. They take people there to torture them and, and extract secrets and so on. Um, but yes, that is, I, think, is that the, I think that might well be the only scene that takes place in this cottage. That's something I'd not spotted before. Um, and it's interesting that that was an extra scene that they added in. So, yeah, that is really interesting. There are some episodes, as you say, um, where he, he's in there for a lot of the time. But even so, some of those are early episodes. Dance of the Dead, he spends quite a bit of time in his cottage. Mm. But that's a Port Merion location-heavy episode as well. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't kind of noticed that before, but yet had. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to put back to the, the comment you made about what Number Six's job might have been, and was he a spy or could he have been a scientist? Um, we were reading uh, Alex Cox's book, where um, I don't want to give away the ending of, of his conclusion to what, no. what he thinks of. Uh, but he also comes back to this idea of, well, maybe he might have been some kind of scientist or engineer or something in that vein, rather than being a spy that mm. everyone assumes. Because this mm. episode, it is very heavy with sort of spy language. Um, the, the way people are, are constantly testing out who other people might be, the way they use the chess moves among their group of co-conspirators to talk mm. about what, what their plans are going to be without being overheard. And I particularly love the moment where um, number six is walking with a copy of the Tally Ho and it's got a chess problem printed mm. in it. And he's using the squares of it to mark off numbers of, yeah. I think, people that he's decided are guardians or, or prisoners. Yeah, that, that's great. And and you're right, it, 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 there is a really strong case you can put for either. Obviously, I don't want to spoil people's uh, enjoyment of Alex's book either. But the conclusion he comes to is valid. And the conclusion that he, at number six is a spy is valid. Mm. And the conclusion that McGowan comes to, which is, well, he, he can't be John Drake or a spy because he'd have got himself out of there a lot quicker than uh, 
and he managed to get out of the village if he were, if he was a proper spy, you know, the James Bond type uh, spy that we imagine. There is a case you can put for for all of them, and that's why that's another reason why it's such a great series, isn't it? It's not they're all there for you on a plate, um, like you know the, the remake and and and, and the, the you know comic book versions and, and paperback novel versions that you get are very clear. You know, number six is a spy. He he does this, and he's he's now imprisoned in this village. Whereas the TV version that we know and love doesn't present you with that. Yes, people can come to that conclusion, and it's a perfectly valid conclusion. But if you do present someone with the idea, you know, he's a scientist, that works. Also, um, uh, is it James Follett, who was a friend of Mark Stein, said that when McGowan opens the curtains at the start of Arrival and looks out, and he's got that kind of half-shocked look on his face. Mm. It's not a look of shock, it's a look of recognition, because Mark Stein originally thought that the, the idea to end the series would be that it would be revealed that it was number six that invented the village in the first place. <laughs> and that, as I say, the look, the look on his face when he opens the curtains is not, where is this place? It's, ah, I'm here. Because hmm. he knows, we knows where he is. So that, you know, there are different ways of looking at it. And none of them are wrong. And that's what I love about Alex's book. Uh, as I say, I won't give away the ending, but people have criticized Alex's book and they are perfectly legitimate reasons to not like his book and I understand what people are saying but where, where I think people have missed the point is that the prisoner is not a, this is what happens story it's a this is what you can take from it story Alex has taken what he has taken from it you take what you take from it I take what I take from it and none of us are wrong that's what's so brilliant about the prisoner is that it doesn't give us a, a, a beginning a middle and an end in, in that sense it just gives us a here are some things that happen what do you think of that? And whatever you think of it isn't right, isn't wrong. It's just what you've taken from it. And, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here today if all the answers were on a plate and it started off in episode one with, this man is a spy. He is taken here. This is what happens. He gets out in the end. We wouldn't be here today. We would just be thinking, well, that's a, a good spy story series from the, from the 60s, you know, something like Coronet Blue, fairly obscure. People might enjoy it and get the DVD of it. The reason that The Prisoner has lasted this long and why we're sitting here talking about it now is because we can have this discussion and we can never, ever reach a conclusion. Mm. You provided the um, text commentaries for the 50th anniversary Blu-ray release. Um, I did. Next year. Is, is there anything, in any sort of particular checkmate stories that you really like? Well, I, I, I say I do like the fact that um, uh, the man that tells or the man that number six speaks to when he gets on the boat is, is Jason Donovan's dad. I think that, I think that's one of those wacky little um, um, curios um, that comes along. But I, I think um, the, the part of Checkmate that I think is really interesting is the fact that how some things appear to have just been cobbled together. Mm. It, they needed a boat, so they went around all the extras. Oh, does anyone know anyone that's got a boat? Oh, yeah, I've got a boat, and it was it was Mrs. Mrs. Marjorie Beer and her husband Harold, who owned this boat, and they lived in Abbasock near Port Mary, and they were extras in Free For All and in some other episodes. Uh, yeah, we've got a boat. All of a sudden, you've got one of the main plot points of the episode is solved by the fact that two of the extras happen to have a boat. If they'd have said, no, we don't know anyone with a boat, what, what would have then happened? It, that, so I love that aspect of the whole of the prison, but particularly in Checkmate, the fact that they needed someone with a boat, and... They, they just happened to be lucky enough that those two people were their extras on that day. If they hadn't have been there, who knows what might have happened. But, um, yes, I enjoyed doing the text commentaries a lot. Uh, uh, some of the um, episodes were more difficult to do than others. If you've got a long scene with only two people, in, there's only so many things you can talk about those two people. But luckily, I did manage to fill 
fill every, every, every spec. So every seven seconds, you get an interesting new fact about every episode. So I don't know what that works out um, per episode. Of, uh, so that's what, sort of about eight, eight different facts a minute, and you've got, what, 50 minutes. So you've got about 400 facts in each episode. So I won't, I won't give them all away now, but there's some nice ones in each episode. I would, I would advise everyone to have a little read, and hopefully you might all learn something new. So coming up in the next few weeks is this Not a Number event at Elstree Studios, all about the life and career of Patrick McGowan. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Um, yeah, it's taking place on Saturday the 23rd of June in the evening at uh, Elstree Studios in the what's called the Studio Suite, which is like a sort of big banqueting um, suite at Elstree Studios, which is, of course, across the road from where the prisoner was originally filmed uh, at MGM Studios, which, of course, meant the life of, of Patrick McGowan, including the prisoner. Um, so we do touch upon that as well. So it starts at about 6.30 in the evening. Uh, the doors open at about 5.45. It's £20 per ticket. And the idea of the evening is basically to celebrate the life and career of Patrick McGowan. So we'll have some special guests who will be interviewed on stage. We'll have other special guests in the audience chipping in with, with comments throughout. Uh, we'll uh, be screening some uh, rare material as well from uh, his career that people hopefully uh, won't have seen before. Uh, we've also got some displays. We'll have some, some vehicles outside which are connected to um, Patrick and, and, and the series that he's been in. And we'll also have um, a display of, of props and costumes and memorabilia, uh, which you would have seen at the January event. But there will also be some from some various Patrick McGowan films as well. Uh, so there'll be, uh, you know, pr- practically the only chance to see some of this stuff will be at this event because it's obviously all owned privately. And very kindly, the people that own these items have, have agreed to sort of display it um, at the event uh, from the schizoid man and also uh, she appeared in three episodes of danger man and she has the utmost love and respect for for working with patrick she as you would have heard on your podcast and uh, when you interviewed her you know she really enjoyed working with patrick and found him uh, great to, to act against so we've got jane marrow she'll be which i think is a lot of people's favorite early magoon piece of work fantastic film um so vera will be interviewed on stage as well and then we have some directors we have john huff who directed the 1978 Patrick McGowan movie Brass Target, um, which also starred uh, Sophia Loren, I think. We also have Alvin Ray's favourite uh, role that he, he played. So it's great that Alvin's coming along. He's an, he's an Emmy Award-winning director. Um, also worked on some really good cult movies. He worked on Crossplot with Roger Moore and Alexis Canna. been announced on, the, uh, on, on any of the websites yet. We're delighted that following um, his appearance in January, that Alex Cox will again be joining us at the event. Um, so I think he was, he was great chatting about his love of, and also his own films in January. This time he's going to be chatting about different Magoo and movies that he really enjoys. So I think it'd be great to have Alex's insights into the movie industry while talking about, you know, his love that he has for Patrick. So Alex Cox will be with us again. We'll also have some recorded content. Um, on Saturday, I was absolutely had a, a wonderful uh, sort of 30, 35 minutes with the actress Susan Hampshire, who I know is a very familiar name to, to most people. She appeared in two episodes of Danger Man, and she starred in a Disney film called The Three Lives of Thomasina, which was one of my favorite films as a child. And um, she spent a lovely half an hour with me. We filmed a quick interview, and she, uh, she told me about her memories of Patrick. She said they can't come to the event because she's in a play at the moment at the Vaudeville Theatre in London. Um, so uh, she'll be on stage while we're having the event on the 23rd of June. But she's recorded a little uh, interview with us and we'll be showing that exclusively at the event for people that have come along. Uh, and uh, the same is true of another couple of people who I can't reveal as yet, but 
in my upcoming news broadcast on your podcast. Your listeners will find out uh, uh, who they will be. Um, we have some more recorded content. And as I say, also, um, we're just awaiting for the, for the rights permissions, but we should have a couple of very early Magoon appearances from the 50s, which have never been released on video or DVD. We hope to be able to, to screen those at the event as well. A couple of things from 1955, as early as that. We're hoping to be able to show to everybody there, as I say. Problem is, when pro programs are so old, it's very difficult to find out who actually owns the rights to them. So there's been a, a few hoops we've had to jump through to try and get permissions for the, uh, to either show clips or to show entire episodes, which is what we're hoping to do. Um, so it should be a really good evening. Um, um, tickets are £20. And the most important aspect that I haven't told you about so far is that all, any profit that's made at this event will be donated to Tigger Base um, Children's Hospice, which is uh, uh, the, the Welsh for Hope House. And it's North Wales' only hospice for terminally ill children. And they rely on donations and fundraising events for 95% of their income. So without events like this one, simply those, those kids would have nowhere to go. So it's a very worthy cause. I hope your listeners, if they're thinking about going, will just take the plunge. I'll even make a personal... Uh, personal promise to anyone that comes along and doesn't have a good time, I'll give them their money back. So, so you can't say fairer than that. But I hope everyone will have a good time. It's for a very worthy cause. As I say, we've got some great special guests, as you've heard, sort of lined up, and uh, there are more guests to be announced as well. Um, so I hope everyone will, will come along, support the event, and, and have a good time. You seem to enjoy the last one, so I'm sure you'll be able to tell your listeners uh, that it was a good do and that they're in good hands if they come along this time. Yes, we we did. We had a really good time at the last one, actually, and we're really looking forward to coming to this one as well and and uh, listening to the talks and also meeting up with some people there as well. Yeah, and well, you get to obviously it's lovely for you to be able to meet Jane as well because you interviewed her and it, it was a lovely interview. You seemed to get on really well, and I know you would have loved to have spoken to her for another hour about so <laughs> yes. many different things that she's been in. I mean, the list of great shows on both sides of the Atlantic that she's been in. Um, you know, when you think of things like The Incredible Hulk and Mission Impossible and these, these great American shows that she was in, it'd be great for you to, to meet up. I'm really pleased that you'll get a chance to meet her at the event as well. She's really looking forward to it. She posted about it on her blog, um, I think, yesterday or the day before. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to, um, to the event. It should be a good night. I'm just putting a few bits and pieces together today, actually, for it. We're hoping to, uh, to have a sort of a bit of a montage of, of trying to get something from everything he was ever in and put it all together in some sort of montage. But it's obviously not easy to do because a lot of the things he was in, sadly, don't exist anymore on tape. So trying to find sort of still photographs and so on is, is proving a bit tricky. So I'm not going to promise that that'll be part of the event, but we're working on it. <laughs> And if, if there's any if there's any kind of pieces of the puzzle missing um, and there's anything that you're still looking for, we can always put a shout out to ask anyone if they know of anyone who has anything that's got footage of or stills from anything on it. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I will do. I'll, I'll send you a once list once we've put it all together to see what is there. <laughs> see what's out there. But it's amazing what still turns up because there's stuff that, you know, people say that doesn't exist anymore. And then suddenly in some far flung vault. Um, something turns up. I mean, I don't know if you remember the story about two years ago. Um, a, a film that was thought lost forever was a film called Catch My Soul, which was the only film that Patrick McGuinn ever directed, mm. the only movie feature he ever directed. And it was thought lost forever, and then suddenly two prints turned up in the space of two weeks, and the film is now out on, on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> it's amazing what does still turn up when you don't think things exist. So we can all, you know, touch wood and say that the Holy Grails are still out there of him working, you know, with Orson Welles and, and these different things might still exist, but who knows. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, Rick. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show again. No, thank you. I'm welcome back any time if you have a 
if you have a slot for any other episodes, I could waffle on for England, really. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for all the, all the enthusiasm and, and greatness that you bring to these podcasts. There's been so many prisoner podcasts over the years. And, and uh, you know, when I, when I didn't know you both, obviously, when you started doing this and when you first contacted me, I thought, oh, it's another podcast. We'll see what it's like. And, uh, you know, you don't notice the time go by. You switch it on, you listen to you both. And it is like being in a room with you and, and watching the episode and enjoying it from a new perspective all over again. So thank you for, you know, I'll never tire of The Prisoner, but you've given it a bit of a new lease of life for me, certainly. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. That's lovely. Well, hopefully I'll speak to you both soon. Thanks very much. Information. Information. So thanks again to Rick Davey for joining us to talk all about Checkmate. It was absolutely fascinating hearing about some of the uh, things that I didn't know. For example, that Jason Donovan's dad being one of the people on board the Plotska. How did we miss that? <laughs> and following that up, we now have some news from the world of the prisoner from some guy named Rick Davey. Who's that? I know I do. This is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. More guests and attractions have been announced for the Not A Number, a Patrick McGowan retrospective event taking place at Elstree Studios on the 23rd of June. Movie directors Alvin Rakoff and Alex Cox will take place in live Q&As on stage at the event. Alvin Rakoff directed Patrick McGowan in the TV movie The Best of Friends, and Alex Cox is, of course, no stranger to fans of The Prisoner. In addition, Susan Hampshire, who appears in two episodes of Danger Man and the movie The Three Lives of Thomasina, alongside McGowan, has recorded a very special interview, which will be exclusively screened at the event. Tickets are still available, and more details are on the Unmutual website. The Tally Ho podcast would like to offer listeners to the show a chance to win a pair of tickets to the event. Simply send an email to info at theunmutual.co.uk with the subject line Tally Ho with the answer to the following question. In the Dance of the Dead Tally Ho podcast, number six's trial is described by Eason as a kangaroo court with a massive what? A winner will be randomly selected from the correct entries. In other news, Network Distributing are having a 40% off sale on some of their items to coincide with Father's Day this month. Amongst the reductions is the deluxe Prisoner 50th Anniversary set, which includes the special edition Blu-ray with new special features, the CD soundtrack set, and the hardback book The Prisoner and Illustrated History by Andrew Pixley, all in one deluxe box reduced from £70 to £45. Join me on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. So thank you to Rick Davey for giving us this week's news from the world of The Prisoner. <laughs> yeah, we'd like to thank Rick Davey for uh, talking to us earlier on in the episode um, about his thoughts on Checkmate. And we'd like to thank Rick Davey as well for giving us his news from the world of The Prisoner. And... Uh, you know what? Just thank Rick Davy again. No apparent reason. That's the way this is going. Um, no, it was. Um, it's really fantastic. We love these news updates, and we do hope that those of you who are listening will have a go at entering the competition that Rick mentioned to win a couple of tickets to the Elstree event in June. We'll be coming to you again in a couple of weeks with an episode all about Hammer into Anvil. 
In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us with any thoughts about Checkmate or Hammer and Randville or any other episode of The Prisoner, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA, or on Facebook on the page Time for Cakes Nail, or on our website timeforcakesnail.com. Uh, we'd really love to hear from anyone who's listening with what they think about the show, what they think about The Prisoner. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can do that on iTunes or any of the usual podcast apps like Stitcher or Podcast Addict under the title Time for Cakes Now. That's the podcast that's got all of our podcast streams on it. Yeah. And uh, one thing we've done recently that you may not have heard about, um, if you want to hear even more of us waffling on about The Prisoner, Mm -hmm. we were both guests of Ben and Brian, who co-host the wonderful Twin Peaks podcast, Twin Peaks Unwrapped. And I think we featured in episode 157. And that's available through iTunes and uh, on Twitter and on Facebook and everywhere. Just search for Twin Peaks Unwrapped. It's a wonderful podcast that covers uh, predominantly the world of Twin Peaks. But Ben especially has a wonderful affinity for the show The Prisoner. And uh, we were guests on the show. And also there's a great chat with Chris Rodley as well, who you'll remember not only a huge Prisoner fan, but also the filmmaker behind the recent Patrick McGowan documentary, In My Mind, which chronicles his interactions with Patrick McGowan back in the early 80s for the Six Into One documentary, and also him returning to that material years later to kind of reflect on his experiences um, with McGowan and how influential he has been and the show in fact has been over the last 50 years so that's a really great episode of twin peaks unwrapped um you should check out their podcast too and uh yeah we're on it and we waffle on about this podcast and our love of the show and we hope you will enjoy that as well yep but in the meantime until we return with hammer into anvil be seeing you you.